0: Hi, I'm Rod Murray, host of State of the Game, and you're listening to Feed the Ball with Derek Duncan on the Talk and Golf Network. Visit www.talkandgolf.com for more quality golf podcasts.
1: Hello again. This is Derek Duncan with the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 48 featuring Kai Golby. In the movie Pulp Fiction, there's a character called the Wolf. The Wolf is a fixer, a specialist, someone with a unique set of skills, the person you call when the situation is critical and no one else will do. I don't know if he'd agree with or appreciate it, but I think of Kai Golby, a highly accomplished independent designer and shaper, as golf architecture's version of the Wolf. Like Harvey Keitel, one of our most underappreciated and versatile actors who plays the Wolf, Golby is both extremely versatile and widely underappreciated, at least to golf's rank and file. But when called, he shows up on site, quietly but in control, wields elite levels of creativity and craftsmanship, efficiently gets to the desired outcome, and departs, leaving the place looking flawless. Golby comes from what can only be termed as a serious golf family. His father, Bob Golby, won the 1968 Masters and began his design career in 1990. In spite of his famous name, he chose to keep a low profile while forging his own path in the golf business. Nearly 30 years into his career, Golby is now known as one of the profession's premier shapers, and like so many of today's best designers, he lives the work, typically relocating to the job site and staying there for weeks or months at a time. Since the late 1990s, he's worked alongside fellow architects like Gail Hance, Bruce Hepner, Brian Silva, Todd Eckenrode, and many others, but has also been Tom Doak's go-to contract killer for work on over a dozen courses, including Ballyneal, Rock Creek, Terra Edie. Bel Air, Apache Stronghold, and Old MacDonald. I caught up with Kai while he was on the job at a project in Southern California, literally on-site, so the connection fluctuated a bit as he moved around. But it was incredibly enjoyable talking with him, and to log this entertaining conversation about his ideas on shaping, his vast and vagabond experiences in the world of golf design, and toward the end of the discussion, to hear some great stories about the Masters, as well as his opinions about Augusta National. So sit back, or drive, or fly, or shape, a workout and enjoy my talk with the wolf, Kai Golby. When you're working a job, where do you typically stay? Do you find somebody to stay with or do you rent a place?
0: No, lately it's like since the whole Airbnb, Airbnb thing kind of came about, it's been pretty – found some pretty great spots to stay through that. You know, I used to kind of have to try to find an apartment or something or whatever and then furnish it or talk to a realtor, but it's actually been pretty cool about the whole Airbnb thing. So got a, got a spot like three blocks from the golf course, a block and a half from the ocean. It's not too bad here. So,
1: There's Southern California for you.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's a little. If I had to pay for it, I wouldn't like it. But
1: <laughs> I'm sure. That, I'm sure you've worked a lot of sites that they don't. You don't have those kind of amenities nearby. It hasn't been always that pleasurable.
0: No, there was a few uh, Stonewall up in Philadelphia, particularly. But yeah, we had a few uh, not so great spots either.
1: What was what happened at Stonewall?
0: Uh we lived in the uh, the farmhouse that was on the golf course. It was an abandoned farmhouse. Sitting on the property, so it just been like a farm that was dust. The farmhouse had no windows, and it had just been filling up with dust for years. And Dokes like, "Oh, we can save money, and those guys could just live there."
2: <laughs> it,
1: those guys meaning meaning you?
0: Yeah, exactly. So uh, there was like four or five of us. there, no air conditioning. Just dirt right in the middle of the site. Like the pipe and everything was stored like in piles around it. And uh, it was it was quite uh, an interesting spot. So yeah. my wife would come up she's like I'm not staying in this I'm like yeah I don't blame you so I actually went and rented a place on my own after a while but you didn't want was, to uh, sleep in the hayloft pretty much what it was it was uh, the, the manger so uh, <laughs> so, uh, so.
1: Uh, does your wife typically travel with you when you're on the job
0: not really she she somehow manages to show up in New Zealand or Southern California but like when I was working in uh, Valley Neal in Holyoke she didn't really come out too often <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can't believe
1: that. Holyoke's such a beautiful, charming little town with so much to do.
0: Yeah, there's there's a lot to do if you're building a golf course, but that's about it. So. Yeah, or ranching. Yeah, she didn't come see she ranching. She didn't come stay at uh, Lock Creek Cattle Company when we literally lived in the ranch house that like was in the middle of where they were uh, impregnating bulls. Like One of the refrigerators actually had this syringe in it, and I was like, what is this? And it's in our kitchen. I was like, what is this thing? And... uh but they were like, so don't touch it, day, don't touch that. Yeah, one of the cowboys came in one day, he's like, what the hell is this? And he's like, oh, it's bull semen. He's like, yeah, I'm glad I didn't put that on my sandwich. Yeah,
1: that's <laughs> like a condiment. <laughs> oh. Well, you don't see, you don't, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's the stories you must have, you don't just, you know, encounter that every day.
0: Well, that's probably fortunate that you don't, know, but yeah, you know, that's honestly, yeah, I don't know if it's the best thing, but it's one of the, the things I enjoy most that we get to do is just go to places I would never go. You actually get to, you know, you're not living in a hotel kind of in a sterile. You're living in part of the, you're living in the place and getting to know the people. It's, I, it's really cool.
1: I imagine that somehow connects you to the work that you're doing. You know, a, good, a great golf courses are always sort of, they arise from their location. They're They're part of their environment. And if the people that are building it are connected as closely as you are to that environment, it's got to come through in the work.
0: No, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, we've talked before just about Valley Neal. I mean, that place was, you know, we just had a bunch of kids out there that for interns, and we had local guys, and, you know, just we went to the little, you know, there's three places to eat in town. They're all basically little taverns, and uh, so, you know, we were just hanging out in the bar every night with the local people, and, you know, um, it definitely, you get the sense of place if you do it the right way. So it's, it's definitely cool.
1: So in a place like Holyoke, when you're building Ballyneal and you're going into town at night, I mean, these people, golf's really not high on, on their list of things they're interested in typically. And, you know, you're there building a golf course and I don't know if they realize it, but it's going to be one of the best in the world. Uh, is there sort of like a clash of cultures there? Are, are you accepted? Do you I'm, even understand yeah. like, what you're doing?
0: Oh, well, number one, you don't kind of, you know, you don't come cruising in in your tour attire, like acting like you're some kind of golf pro or something. So, you don't, number one, you just try to fit in. Right. Um, and, you know, New Zealand was a similar situation down at Terra Eadie with Tom. But, you know, the people have, like in Holyoke, there's a nine-hole golf course. And, you know, it was actually part of the community. But, uh, and in Terra Eadie, they had a, or in Mangawhai, New Zealand, there was an 18-hole golf course right in town. And it's pretty popular cost deal but when we tell people we're building a golf course they have no idea what we're trying to build you know that that you're trying to build something that's literally going to be in the top hundred of the world and they're just thinking you're building this thing they see down the street that goes through a bunch of houses or this little muni golf course so you don't really you try to say hey, we're trying to do something a little different and use the land it's really cool and uh but i don't think they really grasp it until it's done um that in new zealand the people we rented our house from were really great people and they've traveled around a lot but they didn't have any idea and so we took them out there and they're like holy crap you know this is really cool and then as it opens and starts you know it's because now the town sort of embraced it down there i think just because at first they didn't know what we were doing they just thought we were tearing up their natural landscape so uh I think it's always really cool to watch that happen, even to see the people sort of come to embrace it. I mean, that's a big deal out at Holyoke to have that golf course out there. It actually provides employment, brings people out there.
1: You went to Japan, you know, a number of years ago, I think for the first time to work with Brian Silva. Um, What was the name of that project?
0: Uh, The golf course is called a golf course. Okay. Abiko golf club, Abiko golf club, excuse me. Um, And it's just outside of Tokyo, about an hour. It's like, an hour outside of Tokyo. is one of the closest golf courses to Tokyo, so it's uh, a little different than what we're used to here in the states. In the sense that you can, you know, live three minutes away from your golf course a lot of times. But uh, that was a fun project. There. Yeah.
1: So I was, I, that's what I thought it was. He told me a story about how he got that job, and apparently, um, he had been approached by a representative from the club who wanted, they wanted to hire him and they were really impressed with some of his work. And he kept saying no. And he kept saying no, he didn't want to go to Japan and he kept putting them off, but out of kind of out of a, out of circumstance led him to want to, uh, you know, be courteous to them. So he had recently, Silva had recently renovated interlocking where they were hosting, I think a women's us open and they wanted to meet Silva. there the owner and the representatives from this club in Japan who wanted to hire him wanted to meet him and he agreed and then through a series of events they couldn't meet at the time and place on this at interlock and because of the cell phone service and they weren't allowed to have cell phones and he when he when brian finally got to his phone he noticed there were like 32 messages from these representatives from japan and he just felt so mortified that he couldn't get a hold of any he didn't connect with them at the time and place that he finally met up with them and he agreed to go over and look at the golf course. And to make a long story short, they started having these conversations and he hosted them at some other clubs, some other uh, Rainer renovations that he did, and he showed them uh, kind of a preliminary uh, proposal that Silva made for them And they looked at it, they looked at it, looked at it, and one guy they brought over who they called the Shark, who was the attorney for this Yeah, I
0: know. I'm actually dealing with the Shark on another project over there right now. Well, he looks at
1: the plans, and this is Silva telling me this. He goes, he looks at the plans, and he goes, no punch bowl? And Silva said he didn't (laughs) include a punch bowl uh, on the plans, and he said, we want punch bowl. (laughs) <laughs> and that was like the well, big thing. So it, that, that's the project that you went and and worked on, uh, Brian. With so I, I'm assuming the punch bowl got into that design, and I wanted to. hear... Uh, Brian.
0: Brian doubled down. We did a double punch bowl. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was. I he called me. I was actually, I had worked with him a little bit at St. Louis Country Club. I live like five miles from St. Louis Country Club, and I was over at St. Louis Country Club one day with Brian Schneider, who were we? Showing him the course and checking it out. We walked in the superintendent's office, and there's this big plan up on the wall of like a renovation plan. I'm like, oh my God, no. And uh, I was like, what are you doing? And, oh, we're just doing a rest of renovation, restoration. I was like, oh, really? I was like, just, you know, because you know what could happen. And I didn't know it was Brian. And, uh, you know, anyway, so we started talking. I was like, man, I live down the street. If you ever do something here, let me know. I'd love to try to help to make sure. I'd love this place. I don't want to, I'd hate to see anything. He- bad happened to it and so anyway they called me a couple months later hey you want to really help and I'm like yeah and then then I was like well does Brian know They're like nah, he's okay with it so then I met Brian first day we started on that job doing some renovation and uh you know that went really well and it's been a long thing going on forever but anyway a few years after we started that Brian called me and I was over in Scotland at the Renaissance Club working for dope and uh, I remember sitting in this chair watching the sunrise over Bass Rock about six in the morning and, uh, just look at our place, looked over North Barracks, the West Links, and it's like the greatest place I've ever stayed, just staring at that place every morning. But, uh, so he's like, Hey, I've got this job in Japan. These guys really want that me to bring someone over there to help do it. And I was like, Yeah, I don't want to go. Right. And, uh, and he's like, Oh, really? Just, you know, I didn't want to go. They're paying me way more than I should get paid. It's just, just think about it. I was like, No, I don't want to. And, uh, I, was, I don't want to go over there. And so, anyway, we talked and I, Blew him off and then talked to him again. He's like, just just give him a proposal. Just and I was like, all right. So I just threw out some numbers that I thought were, they'd just say no way. And he called me back in like two and a half minutes. Yeah, they said that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was, like, oh, sure. shit. I was like, dang it, I should have gone way higher. But uh, anyway, so I showed up over there the next year, and it was actually right after that Fukushima earthquake. And so when that Fukushima thing happened, I was like, that was like maybe. Ninety by hundred miles north where this golf course is like there's no way we're doing a golf course over there. the whole place you know they're not going to take construction equipment and start working on a golf course anyway, they did, and so I showed up there January first, having never been there didn't know anybody, and uh, started working over there and honestly, the people that like you mentioned the shark and they, there's a guy that's a member there named Sho Tavari who is uh, show does TV announcing in Japan right um, for you know. He does the U.S. Open and the Women's U.S. Open and the British Open and different things. And so he's a, you know, we didn't know that, but he's a real big deal over there. And he's probably the biggest guy in golf in Japan. And he was one of the guys that was calling Brian 30 times um, while he was on the, in the TV tower. That's right. Yeah. And and, uh, so anyway, those guys, they ended up being honestly like the classiest, coolest people I've ever worked with. And I was, I just got back from doing a little tweak over there a few weeks ago and uh so it's been a really cool thing and so that like, was
1: the course is kind of like the the full
0: rainer treatment no not at all um there's got there's some things that are rainer like but the bunkers they're not exactly the allison kind of hirono style okay. but we tried the you know it was it was built by a guy named rokuro akaboshi and he was and his brother went to princeton in the 20s and they met cb mcdonald and went to scotland based on i think some guidance he gave them and played golf at princeton and traveled around and saw you know they were around when pine valley was going on and so they were into golf and and then they were over there when allison came and from what i understand they kind of ran around with allison and then so rokuro built abiko and it's actually a really good routing and it was Probably before they did the double green pro- thing to it, it was probably really cool. And then the whole double green thing, which is a whole, we could talk all day about that. But, you know. Yeah, that came, that so. came up
1: the other day. I was talking about it. You know, here in the Southeast, I live in Atlanta. It was done through the 50s and 60s at most of the upper end clubs. They had double, two grass surfaces for the different seasons. In Atlanta? Yeah. East Eastlake really? East rocked out for a I while. I didn't know
0: that. Mm-hmm. I didn't
1: know that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just so just so the you know the the weather was good enough you could play in the winter too, but you couldn't have right. But right, you didn't so want like, to
0: play on dormant. Yeah, so they would have whatever.
1: right next to the green. They would have like I'm assuming rye, but it could have been something something else that could get yeah. through the winter. Yeah, that was it was yeah. fairly common at the club at the private clubs.
0: Okay, well then that's a very similar climate to Tokyo, which is the same reason that they supposedly did it in... I still don't know the, I've heard different things. I've asked people and thought it would be kind of common knowledge. But from what I had heard, it was a general in the U S army that came over there after, and they took over one of the golf courses and it's like, Oh, this is what we do back. And I heard Texas, but it could have been Georgia. You know, this is what we do. We just have two greens and we'll just do that. Mm -hmm. And then the Japanese culture seems to be, if something becomes popular, everybody does it. And I think it just became, you know, what everybody did. Do you just, the, the best courses had two greens, so everybody did it. Yeah. And the stu- The weird thing now is, they used to have one cori green, which is zoysia, and one bentgrass green, and now they have two bentgrass greens. So it's like, ex- excuse me, <laughs> you know.
1: So are they um, are they like contoured differently, or what's the what's the point of having two of the same surface? Do they even, can they even explain that?
0: No. Well, they it started out again like you know, since because the different grasses, and so. But then when it just became two bentgrass greens. They just make other reasons that they need that. Like I talked to a guy, trying to talk some guys out of two greens at a course, another course I'm working on over there. And they're like, oh no, we can't do that because, you know, when we airify, we have to have another green that's in perfect condition. So what would we do if we airified? And it's like, well, you'd do what everybody else in the world does. You would do your best and you'd play on it. But, uh, you know, they, and their whole golf culture is kind of different in the sense that, people make plans to play golf four or five months in advance. You know, it's like your, your tee time's set for August today, you know? And so they go out, and that's, that's just when we're golfing. And so they try to have a the Do they just, tradition. like,
1: roll their tee times out? Like, I mean, they don't play just once a twice a year. They play continuously, but they have to plan that far ahead every time?
0: Yeah, it seems to be a lot of business golf, too. You know, you bring your customers out to the club. But, um, you know, at, at Abico the place I work with Brian, that's, it was a little different than the other place that I was working, but you know, the guys still plan that they still plan their tea times pretty far in advance. Like I come over and if I say, Hey, let's just play Sunday. And it's not that easy just to like go get a tea time for Sunday on Tuesday afternoon, you know? So, uh, I just think, you know, it's a big deal for people to get out of Tokyo and go play golf. So it's, uh, they try to make it special for them
1: With, with um, two greens. It's the same yeah, side and, by side.
0: Yeah. And getting back to that, that Abiko thing, you know, we didn't really do the Rainer thing. And uh, so we had to kind of Allison bunkers. And then we did some greens, you know, we did up that double punch bowl and we did kind of Brian, we did sort of a redanish green on a par four. And then, uh, you know, there's something someone might say is a double plateau, but it's really not. But, and Brian kind of let me go. We had some plans and, you know, we started off that way. And then I just started kind of, in my usual way, going off reservation and just started building stuff. (laughs) So, uh, we just kind of built what fit. And I, I actually did copy a green from St. Louis country club, the kind of the sixth green at St. Louis is sort of what's a version of a maiden green. And I've kind of built a little version of that on one of the holes over there. And, you know, but there was no template. It wasn't a template course at all. So
1: I think where I think was, I was curious about is, uh, You've spent so many of the years prior to that, and even now, kind of working in the, the Tom Doke mode. That's been where a lot of your work is, not exclusively by any means. But it's sort of a uh, a lot of the sites have been really impressive, and you're building a certain style of naturalistic look. And I, I was wondering if for you is it also desirable? Do you need that break from that to kind of get into something that where the the bunkers are? and the shaping's maybe a little more formalized and polished with, you know, a straighter edge uh, and maybe different sort of strategic concepts I- in a way. Uh, is that something that you need to, to get into sometimes just to sort of shake away from that naturalism mode? I don't,
0: I don't think so. I mean, I enjoy doing a lot of stuff. And with Tom, honestly, I think Tom, and you're probably pretty aware of it, but, you know, the general public, I've heard some of your other podcasts do sure. Talk, you know, they think Tom's doing like the same bunker style all the time the same style. Tom actually I think changes things up. You know, there's if not, you're not doing the same thing and this is nothing against Corn Crenshaw. But I think Corn Crenshaw stuff tends to look a little more similar on a continual basis, where Tom's things tend to, I think, kind of move around the spectrum a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, he obviously has a style that he sticks with, like yeah, you said. Like he certainly, like the loop is a,
1: is a variation on things that he'd done before. He...
0: Yeah, and Common Ground sure doesn't look like Valley Neil, you know. Um, and there's some f- more formal things out there. Yeah, Rawls and, Course
1: is completely manufactured. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that was you know completely different. And then uh, you know, it's just uh, you know, Tom has he puts his guys in charge that have whoever. Whatever associate kind of runs the job, and those guys get to put their fingerprints on it too. With you know, Tom's Tom does the routing, obviously, and has input, but he gives those guys a lot of freedom to sort of put their personality on it. So you get a little different spin each time, and you know, he tries to do something different yeah, too. No, I, you I know? agree with
1: that. I think that the general, you're right, the general public who who actually, you know, I'm look be honest with you you know not that many people who play golf out of the 20 million people probably even know tom doke you know but but the serious golfers right. do and and they know him but you know probably very very few have seen more than a ha- couple of courses they look at pictures in magazines and assume that it all looks the same but i do think there's a tremendous amount of variation in it, in his work and he probably doesn't get enough credit for that um but i guess what i was asked was was trying to get that with you was just from your own perspective from your, for your own edification do you Would you like to get into different styles, like do just completely different looks? Do you feel like the need to express yourself in that way?
0: Well, just let me just, I'll just kind of bring that to my, what I was doing the last year and a half or the last two years. So I've been really busy. I just, as we were talking kind of about this interview, I was like, God, how many days have I been on the road lately? And I kind of added it up on my calendar and I was on the road in 2017, either flying or working 323 days and then last year it was 262 so I've been like I don't know whatever that adds up to like 605 or something out of the last 720 days. Anyway so during that that time period I started working in the end of 2016 beginning of 2017 at Pinehurst number three. Gil obviously was doing the cradle and the uh, number four so we had to move some holes and they didn't have time to do it and I was, you know, it was nice of Jim Wagner and Gil. Hey, I recommended you to kind of go tweak these holes for them. So I was down there doing that. So we were doing some like sandy, dunesy, trying to do a little different than number two on number three, which was Ross's first course. So we were trying to add some primitive elements to it as well from the old photos that they have out there at the Tuff Museum. And so we did that. Kyle Franz was down there working at Mid Pines and he kind of jumped in a little bit. And then I went from there. To Mexico to work on a job. I actually went to Japan and then worked on this stuff that's kind of that I was doing some bunkering to kind of match. I was there and it looks sort of like sandbelt style, kind of flowy, fingery stuff and worked on something like that. And then came from there and went to Mexico on this job that was a Fred Couples, Todd Eckenrode job and helping mm-hmm. those guys. And that was the bunker styles. I don't know. We were trying to do like eroded washes. And I didn't do a lot of bunkers. Blake Conan did the bunkers, but we were doing kind of this eroded, you know, desert landscape stuff, and then I went from there directly to the Creek Club and built bunkers for Gil at the, on the Creek Reservation. so now you're doing completely, you know, Rainer bunkers, literally, Yeah. kind of Rainer bunkers, so doing that and working on that, and then went from there to another job for Gil in Denver, which was a really old Ross course. And so we were doing like chocolate drops and kind of steep faced kind of, you know, more again, geometric almost bunkers and some, you know, push up greens and steep banks. And then what did I do after that? Then I left there and went to Bel Air <laughs> and then we're doing George Thomas, the so kind of complete opposite and left Bel Air, went to, I'm getting long, went to Japan and did another style of bunker over at Abico, the Allison style. Then left there and came back to the US and worked at West Bend Country Club, which is a Langford, and redoing a nine hole there that's not Langford. So I'm building big, giant Langford style grass bunkers and big, steep banks for a new green. And I really love doing that. Then I went to another course at the Langford course back in St. Louis and built a couple of bunkers that are that style, and then went to New York, to Saratoga Springs on this little nine hole renovation job I got, which was an 1896 golf course that's basically Victorian era and was doing just what you're talking about, completely formalized kind of things that are completely, you know, 180 degrees from doing George Thomas. So. I've, I get my share of variety. I I actually take pretty much pride in being able to, you know, so, oh, you just build these dope bunkers. No, not at all. And the stuff that, like, just that we did in Saratoga is really cool and it's really different. And, you know, I, I can pretty much go any direction and I much prefer getting away from this, you know, if I'm helping someone do a job, it seems like everybody wants to do... I don't know, we're out here in California doing this Billy Bell style bunkers, and it just seems like everybody wants to do these kind of fingery, kind of freeform, you know, and if it's, you know, blowout bunker style, and it's just, I, you know, if I never did another one, I wouldn't mind, but, wow. you know, um, you know, some places it fits, it makes sense, but there's a lot of places it's like, really, you maybe could try something else.
1: Well, I, I know you do a lot more, and, and all shapers do a lot more than building bunkers, but is... Bunker is is sort of building is is what you know immediately grabs the attention. I mean that can, be, can become the identity of a golf course.
0: Yeah, if, it's, it's the if
2: somebody's not
1: you know. a member who plays it every day, you know, who gets to know all the intricacies yeah. of it, is it? Does it take time to learn how to build different styles of bunkers? All those styles you just went through from Cape and Bay to old school to you know Langford style to the to the wispy edge, and lacy edge bunkers. Like, is that it? Are each one of those a skill that you have to acquire through practice? I think it's
0: more observation. You know, you have to really be observant to what you're trying to do. Um, and, you know, maybe be educated on what each style kind of is and why. But it takes time. You know, when I first started, like, the first bunkers I ever really built with an excavator. I built some with a dozer early on in my career. But we're at... I built one at Texas Tech with an excavator, trying to learn how to run the excavator, but then went to Stonewall, and I had never been on and really built a bunker like ex- with an excavator and built all those bunkers at Stonewall, and they actually turned out pretty good, but it took some time to kind of figure out what works. But, I, you know, I think it just depends on the person. I think if you have the right eye, it, you've got a good start, and if you know how to run the machine, you know, that's not that hard, anybody to run the machine. Um, you just have to kind of get some time to see. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't... I just think it's more golf knowledge and observation knowledge. Brian Slonick one time said to someone where you're building things, you know, the directions are all right in front of you. Just look. You just look at the other stuff that's out there and just mimic it. Um, so. Now, what so, about when you're hey, on, I, like I,
1: you mentioned you're at Saratoga, and I'm not familiar exactly with, with the lineage of that golf course or what the bunkers are like, but, but golf courses from, you know, the 1920s era or earlier, especially in certain parts of the country, uh, they were they were also you know built with hand labor and, and mules and, and equipment that we don't use today. So the the thought is like you know the, the construction aspect or the method was was fairly simple and rudimentary because you're not you don't have an excavator. It, when you're rebuilding bunkers like that, do you also need to go in a more simple uh, methodology or kind of get your head? Are those bunkers more simple to build? to repeat since they were initially. It's, it's almost, it's
0: almost, it's almost harder sometimes because you try, you know, you do all this natural thing and you're trying to blend things in a little bit. you like, you put just dumping a pile of dirt in the middle of the fairway and saying that's done. It's kind of hard. It's just like, yeah, just let it go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, you know, we had some old photos of that thing. It was from, it was built in 1896 and opened in 1897. And, uh, you know, they were literally Victorian era, just, piles of dirt in a ridge. They just dug a trench and flipped the dirt on the backside and that was it. And uh so,
1: so you have to train yourself to, to just do that?
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's just there's a few little things about how the dirt kind of fell. You know, it's a guys will talk about the angle of repose, just how the dirt sort of fell. And they just piled this stuff up. It just kinda of, the angle it just kinda of sloughs off is sort of what the slopes are on the side. And you have to almost fight yourself to not do too much. But then, you know, we, we took this, and there was that golf course that was built then. But it had changed a little bit. Some of the Victorian stuff went away, and we don't know the exact situation. But the guy that was the president of the club built McGregor Lynx right up the street in Saratoga Springs, which was a Deborah Emmett course, which was an amazing golf course that's unfortunately been kind of messed up. But that guy was the president of the club when Deborah Emmett was in town. And there's some bunkers that sort of look like Emmett's guys might have come in. There was because there was a renovate, a little bit of a remodel done. It almost looked like some Emmett stuff. So we kind of, I kind of cherry picked a little bit of Emmett and even some, we built some chocolate drop mounds and I, there's some old Travis stuff up there that was built in 1910. And so we kind of built some chocolate drops that sort of look like some of the Travis stuff. So, you know, we kind of stole a few ideas from the era and kind of made some decisions based on what we thought happened historically. And a lot of the Victorian stuff had disappeared. It disappeared, some of it just because it was out of style, but some of it because it was in places that I don't think they really understood construction. So they put some bunkers like in a drainage swale where all the water was running. And so maybe that didn't make sense to keep them there. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't know. It's it's a lot of fun to build the old quirky stuff. Like I just came out here in this job in California and I kind of wanted to throw... This is a 1920s golf course. So I'm kind of trying to throw some steeper little quirky things in and the other guys yeah what's that let's not do that <laughs> so you know you have to pick and choose
1: yeah it was interesting you know we were talking about when you go on a site especially like in a remote place you know you kind of have to embrace the the culture that of whatever the town is and and you kind of see the way people live and that comes out of you in, in the way you you build things perhaps and it was interesting that you said that Something similar to that when Brian Slonick said it's you know you just, just look at what's out there. there there's a roadmap there you just kind of see what's exists and, yeah. and, and replicate that and it's interesting that you could do that speaking of I mean, these older golf courses you know on on every site like you just mentioned Devro Emmet and you kind of once you study it you can observe the the or surmise the construction techniques that they might have used and, and maybe you impl- include that in your method or like and you mentioned West Bend Langford course. That would be a, a different method of construction that they use. You know, that was a little bit more. Yeah, they used a the steam shovel, yeah, and taking like borrow pits and piling things up steeply. So you could that would influence how you would approach working on that golf course.
0: Yeah, no, the Langford stuff is actually. I was thinking how you just mimic. Actually, I worked on quite a few Langford things. I grew up on a Langford course, but the first times I tried to build the Langford bunkers, I failed miserably, and it was like that doesn't look right. And you sort of have to really pay attention to why is that not looking right? And so even I started looking up like steam shovels online and you start seeing how a steam shovel works and you're like, okay, now I see how the function of that steam shovel actually created this bunker. face. Can you explain and that, that? kind of, well, if you have an excavator, the bucket's facing downhill, if that makes any sense. If I'm digging, I'm, the bucket's pointing downward and I'm like digging down. Yeah. Well, the the steam shovel had this arm sticking out, and the bucket went uphill. So, as the bucket was going up, it was kind of going away from them a little bit, and then they would ex- as it got to the top, they would kind of extend it out and dump the dirt. So, it's sort of the angle of the face of the bunker was just sort of how that steam shovel, how the arc of that bucket was going uphill, and then the little Langford's bunkers tend to just A rainer bunker might almost have a seam at the top. It's like a hard corner to where Mm -hmm. the top of the green is. But the Langford thing, just there is no seam. You can't really tell where the face of the bunker starts or stops and the roll in the green or the top of the bunker begins. And so that's sort of, I think, the process of that steam shovel going up and rolling. And then they just kind of smoothed out what was at the top. And so I've actually talked to some guys trying to get, just imagine this showing the steam shovel. Imagine you're doing this. And that's the angle you're trying to get. And now that, so that you wasn't, can, wasn't. You
1: can kind of replicate that motion with an excavator.
0: Not really. You just have to think about what that steam shovel was doing, and you have to. You know, you can't really. Now there is a. Funny we're well, getting So there is some machinery where you can flip the bucket upside down, like these 360 degree buckets. But you really have ever had one of those. You could kind of try, but the arc still, the angle that the machine is going up is not the same. And if you look at the Langford bunkers, even you can see there's literally a radius usually of some sort where the bunk, where the machine was sitting. And you can kind of see the bunker die off at of one end, get high in the middle and tends to die off again. And it's kind of got this arc and that's sort of where the machine was sitting and the boom could swing around. Hmm. So, you know, it's, it's uh, just those kind of details to pay attention. Again, like Brian said, the directions are there. You just have to be able to read them.
1: Well, and I guess then you have to be able to reverse engineer it, it in a case like Langford because it's not that easy to do. You know, no, it, take, it's it takes not a, as easy it takes... as it looks. Yeah, I mean, it's even if the, even if the map is there, you need the key to
0: decode it. Yeah, someone to teach you how to read it. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but no, it's all, those things are just I don't know. I I have a blast doing that kind of stuff and thinking about it. So people probably you know. Unfortunately, there's some nerdy people listening that probably listen to this that think it's cool, but most people are like, who cares?
1: <laughs> we're teaching them, you know, we're teaching them how to be yeah. nerds. If they're not nerds yet, we'll get them there. <laughs> well, the other night, uh, West Bend Country Club in Wisconsin was built by, by David Gill, and um, that was added in the late 50s. And, you know, he's, doesn't ha- he's not a household name, and probably maybe no. there's a reason for that. But did, did, what do you know about him? He, I, from what I know, he's maybe more interesting guy than an interesting architect. You know, he was a a war hero. Um, He had polio and he was allegedly a a very knowledgeable in, Uh, British architecture and Lynx golf and the old Lynx masters. you
0: Honestly, you just told me more than I ever knew about I knew nothing about the guy. Honestly, I didn't really even try to pay attention just because I knew that we didn't really care what was there. (laughs) Right. You wanted (laughs) to to, to
1: do Langford all the way through, which is, I'm sure is a good move, but, but I, I just, what I, little I know about him. I mean, he seemed like a, and it's almost a strange uh, paradox that uh, allegedly, you know, he was one of the, at that time in the fifties, he was one of the foremost experts on British golf. And I'm That's not sure that really, any of that knowledge carried over into his own work.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you talk about different stuff on your show about, you know, and we could go again know, forever about this. But the 50s, I just think people, you know, general architecture, not just golf architecture, they just kind of blew off anything from the past. And we're like, oh, we've got this new way to do things. and It's way better. Um, and... I just think they ignored it. I mean, they had a Langford plan up there for the uh, back nine and routing and the whole thing, and they could have easily done that. And instead they reversed the routing and made it much simpler, you know, and it's, uh, they were like, Oh, it's too hilly. We need to go the other way. And it's like, it's the same Hills. You're going one way or the other. What are you talking about? Um, so, but it even goes back to where we were working at Bel Air. We were told that Dick Wilson came in there and said, anything that's blind is no good. And so they flattened out the May West hole. They flattened the ninth green and anything that had any, any blind kind of shots, they just look, we have these bulldozers. We can take all this out. And I kind of think the same thing with David Gill. It's like, well, why would we use all these crazy contours when we can kind of flatten them out with a bulldozer or not have to, you can go wherever we want, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean that's that as you know, as, as you've heard on this show, that's a lot of that is is economics. Um, you know the the rise of, of the power of superintendents, I think, and their influence on club members on how to save money and you know the cost of labor and financial considerations. But yeah, there's a lot of a lot of it is just the the culture of the time. You know, it was the the modern era. It was modernism that was more important I- than to look like they had a new course rather than have an old course. Nobody really wanted an old course. That just no, clients nobody going wanted anything to wanted. old.
0: You know, you look at the, just the building architecture. I mean, you get that modernist, brutalist style. It's like, how would you ever think that was good? But uh,
1: Because it looked um, new, and it didn't it didn't yeah. look old. You know, that was valued, and, yeah. you know, the spaces were modern. The technology inside the buildings was modern.
0: Yeah, I was even told, this is getting off track. I was even told, like, they had the factories from the war, and they were like, they could manufacture, like, like a high school in our town I grew up in there. Oh, they could manufacture all these parts in those factories to kind of build the building, and they yeah. wanted to kind of reuse that. But, yeah, you no, know that I was I think think it was an industry to pre, yeah.
1: prefab buildings and houses, tract homes. Um, yeah. yeah, I know it doesn't make sense now, but you know that's the that's the way time moves. You know, everything there's always different movements, and uh, the interesting thing about that that's kind of like I, I continue to look at more and more golf course architecture as an art. You know, when I, I think the very first episode I did of this show, I was said I wanted to extra, examine how. Golf course architecture is the confluence of art, engineering, and and sales and commerce. But you know that's to me, as a not somebody who's not in the construction side of the business, I, I more and more gravitate toward it as an art, and I appreciate it as an art. And it really frustrates me when I see golf courses that haven't been built or considered as pieces of art. They doesn't have to be all great and perfect but there has to be care put into it and i think we were missing that for a long long time but in the 50s i, I think, think right. and 60s i do think they a lot of the architects you know before you got into building golf courses for residential communities a lot of the golf courses built in the 50s and 60s were still kind of like core golf courses that had a purpose and i i think they applied art to it but what i was going to get at is almost every art form whether it's painting or building architecture or literature or what have you music there's a drive by artists to try to break away from the past you want they want to be avant-garde on some level and do something new and explore new territory and that's what i actually think that was happening in the 50s and 60s as well even though we don't appreciate it as much now i do think there was an effort to try to create new forms and it's interesting that golf course architecture kind of resists that, especially now with the budgets being so big and there's such an element of commerce and investment to it. I don't see a drive in, archi- in modern architecture you know, in the last 20, 30 years to really be creative or to really break free from the past breaking free from the 60s 70s 80s and 90s maybe but like we're in this mode where we're reverting back so many people the top architects textures reverting back to the 1920s and just from your perspective i know you appreciate that that's kind of your that's kind of where you live and what you're interested in but do you see golf course architecture at some point getting to a place where there is a desire to break free as an art form and to pave in a new direction is that even desirable is it possible
0: I don't know. I think the first thing is, you know, the art form, sure, there there's definitely some golf courses are a lot more art than others. But, you know, if I'm a painter or a sculptor or something, I've got my medium. It's not going to cost $6 million and someone's got to give me $6 million to paint a painting. I can pretty much get a canvas and some paint and right. go do something, yep. create, you know, off the charts creative. And with golf it's, it's still a function of economics no matter what happens it's got to drop people have to come play it or someone's got to be able to maintain it and blah 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 you know it's still about money so to be just creative for the sake of being creative and different isn't really going to if it doesn't function and it goes bankrupt what's the point you know uh, so I think it's harder, especially you know when I started in this, I got some jobs on my own to do a design. and I'm a 27 year old kid, and people are letting me design a golf course, and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. You know, there was five or six hundred courses a year being built or more. You know, what is it now in the United—that's the United States—and what's in the United States now? Ten, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Um, and you know, if you're if you're the owner, why aren't you hiring Tom Doke and Bill Cor? First off, you know, I mean. You know, they're the best. Why wouldn't you? Um, so the opportunity for people to sort of maybe go out and be creative and do a a million and a half, you know, the golf, one of the first golf courses I did, it cost maybe a million three to build. You know, we built an 18-hole golf course with a bunch of farmers. And, you know, I could be creative because I didn't even know what the heck I was doing.
1: <laughs> so Did you feel like you were being them, creative?
0: I thought I was. I honestly didn't know much. I just... Uh, I had worked on a couple of golf courses, but, you know, my palette of knowledge was not that big. But I, th- I thought I was coming up with some ideas. And later I was like, oh, look at that. Donald Ross did that 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. I thought I was coming up with something, you know. And then I th- at the same time, I thought, hey, that's kind of cool. I didn't know what I was doing, but I did the same thing those guys did or a similar thing. But I just think it's very difficult. I mean, you can't get that creative on a renovation either. It's like you can try, but, you know, you can't. Just, just hey, look at me on a renovation. I don't think that's what people are looking for either.
1: Um, not on no. a historic res- re- renovation. Yeah, yeah, that's not what you're being and, paid to do.
0: No, and if you're, you know, if you're going to do something just wacky on a renovation that's going to cost six or eight million dollars, they're probably not going to hire a 24 year old kid that has some wild new ideas that he wants to put out there. Um, So I I think a lot of a lot of that's just a function of the economy and where we are. I think as far as that creativity, I think there's a lot of things that we could do now. How creative it really is? Is it just going to be reiteration of something that's already been done? And you know, I think I've heard you've mentioned that before. Everything's kind of a takeoff of.
1: It's a little bit where we are now.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're definitely just this kind of neo—I don't know what you'd call it—but just kind of repeating the '20s style. You know, and I think the architecture of the '20s, the strategic element, is great. You know, not. Was lost, I think, in the fifties, where it became more narrow from the irrigation, single row irrigation, and aerial approach. But uh, you know, yeah, well, I mean, still no, that's, aerial, that's the basically. other thing. Many,
1: many other people have said it, but you know, there's there's really not that much new in in golf, uh, golf holes. I mean, there's only so much nah. you, you can do. It's not like with the, you know, you see the the progression of painting from from the Renaissance through you know abstract expressionism and beyond like i mean there's radical things that you can do i mean you're still using paint but it's completely different and but you know you can't do that with golf courses and you're right that
0: you can actually you can i was just in japan and there's some desmond muirhead stuff there that that you can go in different directions all right well let's talk let's talk
1: about that for a minute then um you know because i saw that i saw you post that photograph on instagram and i responded to it and and i've i've been very critical of desmond Muirhead, um because a lot of this stuff i mean it's just it's it's not only kind of corny and ridiculous but it's unworkable from a playability standpoint but other things that that he built and that hole that you posted uh the picture of and maybe other holes too it it might, it's, looks like it functions from a golf perspective uh, and then it has this yeah, added I, think, element. I think he was actually
0: better at golf than people may give him credit for, but I think he got bored with golf in general and just started you know just going off just just going whacked. <laughs> um, but there was some actual decent golf in, hidden inside of some of this stuff. It was like some of the greens were better than most of the greens I played in Japan, like mm-hmm. style wise so.
2: You well, know, I know he was like, goes he, worked some, with,
0: he worked at Muirfield with Jack, I think, right? I mean, he mm-hmm, basically yeah. helped design Muirfield with Muirfield Village.
1: I mean, I think it goes back to, doesn't it go back to the client? Like, what the clientele will accept? I, I think the clientele is, look, this is cynical, but in the wide world of golf, you know, 80 to 90% of the golfers who play are not you know discriminating. They'll probably play whatever puts, is put in front of them if it's you know reasonably priced and convenient you know and, and has good greens and that's that's been his true historically that's why the if you think golf architecture in the 60s and 70s and 80s or whatever you want to draw the line if you think it it kind of lost its way a lot of it's because the people who played the golf courses didn't care you know they weren't they were not making ju- value judgments on golf courses so if you have people that are willing to play a Desmond Muirhead course, that also means that, that the clientele might potentially be willing to uh, accept something else that's completely fresh and out of the box and doesn't look like everything else.
0: Yeah, and, you know, we play. We were kind of just talking about that as we were playing. It's like, yeah, this is completely out of the box and what's completely different than anything. But we also were kind of having just excited to get to each tee we would start kind of laughing as we were coming from the one green to the next he was like, holy crap what are we going to see now you know and you get on a tee and you just burst out laughing and so it's like okay we were entertained and you know it was a, now it also that golf course that we we're talking about was called oak village and from what i was told it cost 40 or 50 million dollars to build so um Back yeah. in the, like the late '80s oh, or 90s it's like you know that's just insane, and that was the Japanese bubble boom economy then, and you know it's just, I mean they they can't afford to keep water. The lakes had half the water in them, and just you know they can't afford to take care of it even now. So there's also, you know he get he got a little carried away, and obviously the Japan era was all about getting carried away, but uh, sure. yeah you know, yeah you but that's just. You know, it's not sustainable to do anything like that. So, you know, you could go blow a big, big budget, but then in the future, it's not going to be there probably. So
2: mm.
1: I guess I'm just interested in, in the prospect. I mean, cause it's, look, it's, we, we're not going to stay where we are you know, from an artistic point of view. Something is going to change whether by whether through the environment or budgets or uh, you know, just new generations of, of people coming into the game. We're not going to, the golf courses that we've been building the last 20 years and, and the way we've been renovating them, it's just, it's not going to stay the same. I don't know what it's going to be, but it's going to change. And, And hopefully it's, it's all productive and, and healthy and economical and sustainable and eco-friendly, but you know the, the skin on top of it, the way it's looked, the the head aspect of it may come back just because it can, and it's it's just it's what some either f- future generation desires or there's going to be an opportunities for, for young people who get their shots to, to take their shot in a different direction.
0: Yeah, and I'm not that young, but uh, I like to at least act young. But uh, the thing thing that we did at Saratoga Springs, the little nine-hole course there, I mean, honestly, what was done there I think would be it's pretty easy and it's pretty cost-effective and it's different. And, you know, you're basically keeping the land as it is. But what we did there is they had, I don't know, they probably had 30 bunkers in the golf course and maybe 15 of them had been added in the mid-'80s. And so in the process of cleaning up the bunkers and removing the, the bunkers that were kind of added in the '80s, we had all this sand, and they hadn't taken sand out of the bunkers in years. They just kept adding it. Um, so I took all the sand out, and rather than just sometimes you talk us, with it or just you know, put it somewhere as, to use for something later. Uh, we went and built chocolate drops with them and kind of built a base with maybe some stones or something, and then just dumped this sand. And made chocolate drops so it cost nothing it was just and it actually was cheaper because we didn't have to haul it as far we put it we wherever we demoed the bunker we found a place to put a chocolate drop kind of close by and didn't have to haul the sand very far right. to get rid of it and built these little mounds and they're really kind of cool looking and they're old looking and doing the, pro, the same thing to just digging the new bunkers they were most of them were kind of where the bunkers were and so you know we just made the steep faces and kind of moved on and just kept the strategic out you know you made some strategy out of it but it it didn't really cost anything and you know, we've got a very different looking golf course than what people are used to building kind of by going you know creating hazards that go up instead of down um and it's not it's again it's nothing new i mean they were doing it in scotland eons ago you know and so as we said there's nothing new. you can just go over to scotland and england and pretty much see anything you ever want to see
1: right I mean that, and your your point is is well taken. That you know, whatever it comes next, whatever the next evolution of golf course design is, unless you, unless you branch off into the Desmond Muirhead or or Mike Strands or you know, extreme Pete Dye uh, Avenue, it's it's probably going to be some sort of reproduction of of something that's come before. You know, including those kind of that Victorian period of, of shaping and construction. It'll, it'll look. Yeah. Might you know it, we we haven't gone back far enough yet before we you know decide we need to pull back into the future
0: yeah or it could just be someone gets a site and you use the landforms that are on the site that are kind of unique and you make some you know that's how a bunker started it was a landform that was over in Scotland from the sheep you know and so now we're maybe somebody has the,
1: a now we're going back to the 1500s like yeah. we're still going backwards
0: yeah but i mean you know i mean it's, like, it's just using something that's unique to your site. Maybe someone comes up with something that's really cool and people want to start trying to, you know, take some natural site from a California site and start putting it in Japan for some reason. Just like, why do we put sand bunkers on rock sites when they were, you know, they came from dune sites. So, yeah. um, but maybe someone will come up with that and it'd be cool if they did. But, you know, we still, you're still doing that. you have a tee and you have a green. So you're still, there's still some structure that you have to kind of stick with. You can't just, just completely reinvent the wheel.
1: So at the risk of... of I, hate this, I hate this term, so I want you to know that when I ask this, but just to kind of explore this this topic a little bit further and what you're just saying, um, in your own work, would you consider yourself a minimalist?
0: In the sense that I think minimalism, trying to not be noticed that you were there, I think that's probably the key for what I'm doing and probably why, maybe even why I'm not that do that much design on my own because I tried not to draw attention to myself. And, you know, when you're out on the golf course, if, if you can't tell I was ever there, then I've been successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a minimalism in that sense, I think, yes, I would be minimalistic. But I also, and people that work with me will probably laugh, but I have no problem blowing up the world, just dropping the dozer blade and just changing everything. But when I get done, I hope you can't tell I was even there
2: mm-hmm.
0: um so i in that sense i'm not I'm not afraid to blow something up and move a lot of dirt, but then try to make it feel like I was never there
1: it's such a it's just a tricky term and a tricky concept to to nail down and maybe it's not even a concept because there's no such thing i mean i think it, i think there is a such thing as the way you describe it you know you try to make it look like as little possible was done and you don't leave a You don't leave your fingerprints on it, but it seems like there's always more, not always, but in almost every case, there's more that you could take away. Like true minimalism would be literally just maybe, I would say from my perspective, like the purest form of minimalism would, would be, I'll allow you to, seed like new grass or even sod new yeah. grass you know and then mow a green out and put a flag in it but i would say the minute you <laughs> start carving bunkers into the ground like you're not it's not minimal yeah, i anymore. agree
0: with you i agree with you and i mean we played a couple courses in new zealand that were minimalist i mean they were literally the guys mowed down their fields and obviously you built a green so there's something as far as getting a medium to yeah. grow you have to ha- something you can put to put on yeah and you have to smooth it out but i mean they were that was minimalism but you know there was a there was a mailbox stuck on a stake, and you put five bucks in, and you, you played. And so it wasn't a, that minimalism wasn't the most popular golf, but it was awesome.
1: What, did you like that? Is that intriguing to oh, you? Oh, I loved it. it could I you play it. that often?
0: I would play that probably more often than I would play. You know, I would. I'm down the street from Torrey Pines right now. I'd play that a hundred times in a row before I'd play Torrey Pines. Well, I know
1: that. <laughs> I know that. <laughs> <laughs> there must be some better comparisons than Torrey Pines
0: um so yeah i mean you,
1: you said before about just like using like the, whatever natural landforms and whatever elements are, exist on site and just using that going i said i made the joke like 15 going back to the 1500s but that's that's the essence of what, what you're talking about in these courses in new zealand yeah.
0: and honestly you can learn if you're like doing kind of golf course building and design you can learn something from those places because you see something that the guys just reacted to what was in the ground and put some hole there. It was like, you know, that's actually really cool. And they didn't even know what they were doing. And you can sort of steal that and file it away in your little file drawer of your mind and use it someday. Um, you know, that's the cool thing about going to see golf courses. You, it might not be a famous, not Cypress Point or something, but you might pick up just a little contour in a green or some little weird hole that's like no one's ever heard of. But you can use it, you know
1: so i'm gonna s- i'm gonna swing the discussion hundred and eighty degrees and talk about another style of design and um you built a golf course with your father, and just in case I don't address it in the in the lead in when I record that, and anybody doesn't know, your father's Bob goldby the winner of the nineteen sixty eight masters and uh first of all i just watched <laughs> I watched that round last night on youtube and what a what a badass like he's rocking that blade mock penguin collar shirt and a black pants. Yeah, he was like,
0: pretty, he was, just funny, because the Tiger Woods one, he was giving Tiger Woods shit about that shirt, and I was like, Dad, do you remember what you wore when you won?
1: Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's baller, man. That was awesome, and, um, but you designed a golf course with him, and, you know, as, obviously, like, he's a a tour pro, very successful, has his own ideas about the way golf is played, and I think, did you mention that you also co-designed a course with Johnny Miller?
0: Yeah, it was it was kind of a weird in a co-design sense. It was sort of, I got hired to kind of do something, and someone else had already laid this thing out, and I kind of rerouted it some, and then the the owner guy that had hired me, then, like, after I was getting excited about, oh, yeah, we're going to bring Johnny Miller in, and then, you know, Johnny's like, I have to t- take over, you know, and it was just, I don't know. Okay. Well, that goes into in what my,
1: what I'm interested in asking you about is, is that experience and that uh, being involved in that design and creative process with somebody who... Uh, I don't know about at that point when you were with your dad if if your ideas were fully formed, but they are now. Like, but designing next to somebody with a very clear view of how a golf course should function because they have a specific playing background, and then you coming at it from another angle. Like, how does how does that mixture work, and what did you take away from uh, being involved in that process, especially maybe as it relates to your to your father?
0: You know, my dad. We did he got a job. That's how I got started. This. So I was working in Boston for fidelity investments. And I was just like, after college, I was thinking I was going to be a, a wall street baron after school. And, um, uh, quickly learned that wasn't my thing, but <sighs> really, yeah. So I was, uh, trying to think of something else to do. Just sitting up in this office up in Boston. It's like, this stinks. And, uh, so I knew a guy that was in golf instruction through my dad growing up. And, uh, I was thinking maybe I could do that, you know, that would be kind of cool. And then anyway, literally, like, I think I was thinking of this a couple of nights and I get a call and he's like, yeah, these guys in our hometown are building a golf course and they want me to help them. And uh wanted to know if they asked him advice, like, who should we hire? And he's like, I'll do it. And so it was a housing course in the 90s. And uh, so I was like, you know what, I'm going to quit this job. I'm going to come back there and do that, <laughs> you know, knowing nothing. And uh, so... I did and went back and he was playing the senior tour then a lot and, uh, or it's champions tour now, but, and also doing television and he did television announcing for NBC back then too. So he was gone a lot. So I kind of showed up and I kind of got to, you know, dictate a lot of stuff people were doing and didn't know the construction element at all, but I knew a little bit about a golf hole, but not enough, but I got to do way more than I should. I also did a lot of just, you know, go out in the woods and flag trees you know, walk through the woods and try to figure out where they were going to clear the hole, um, and things like that. So anyway, I, that's kind of what I got into with him. But as we got in, I didn't know much either. I was basically operating as a tour pro kind of op design. I'd played college golf and, you know, amateur golf a little bit. And so my thinking was a little bit along those lines, but I did start trying to learn things, start trying to read a bunch of books. And as that sort of started to coalesce in my head, I had some different ideas. And I think my dad and most tour pros ideas are more straightforward. You know, the, you should be able to make birdies and you should be able to, uh, why would you make that run away from me? What that makes me have to hit a different shot. You know, I don't want to do that. And they're used, they want to look good, you know? And even though those like my dad can play all kinds of crazy shots on the ground, but he's, you know, he wants to hit the thing flying at the flag and knock it stiff and doesn't want a bunker in the middle of the fairway that he has to think about. Right. <laughs> so, you know, um, that might make a seven. You know, right? I think he, it's cool that you he might make any, a seven.
1: never made any money having to pick which side of the bunker to hit it on.
0: No, and if you went in that bunker and missed the cut, you don't like that freaking bunker. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, um, you know, that's the, I think the two tour, tour things, just they have a different thinking. They're not, honestly, if you're looking at the architecture and really studying, it's going to be hard to play well you just kind of have to have tunnel vision and i need to hit it there and i need to hit it there and you start looking at you start looking at trouble on a golf course and it gets in your you start thinking about it you're done you know and obviously that's what we're trying to do build a golf course is get in their heads and they don't want you in their heads
1: so does that do you when you approach design do you does any remnant of that remain with you and go into your thinking or do you have to kind of are you more comfortable rejecting that way of looking at golf and coming at it from a, a different, more holistic, and uh, a place where there aren't any rules, and you can do whatever you want—that total freedom of design.
0: Yeah, I think there's always that in the back of my head. I mean, uh, I try to be more open-minded, and I think I do a pretty good job of it. But I think I do have a little bit of the player's comprehension and understanding that, and also knowing that you know people are going to hate this if you do take this too far. Just knowing that if if all the good players hate something at a club, the chances of it sticking around are probably not too good. You know, because the good player is the person that people listen to. That's Um, true. Yeah. So I was with Brian Schneider, who works with Tom, worked with me when I was in Virginia doing some stuff on my own. He worked with me for a few years before he went with Tom. And. Brian had been working at Pine Valley and Augusta on the maintenance staff, and he came and we started building some stuff, and he was building some greens right off the bat, and there was a lot of big slope in it that was unpinnable. And, like, maybe it was my common... My dad's also a pretty common sense guy, and the Midwestern kind of common sense. And for me to build a green with a bunch of unpinnable area that cost money to have greens mixed seemed like kind of a waste. And But Brian did this stuff that was kind of big slopey. and I was like you know that's something that I wasn't comfortable doing because I almost heard my dad in the back of my head you just you know that's unpinnable why are you wasting that space you know but so that was that was a big point actually just for me with watching Brian Dizzy you know that's that's a good idea but it's not it's not sort of economical and functional if you're thinking of the things that way but you know it was creative, and then you have a smaller pin placement below that. So there's little things like that that, from growing up around a tour player, that maybe they stick in your head, that you have to kind of be aware of and not let it kind of drive what you're doing.
1: What was it like growing up with somebody who was so famous? You know, somebody who who had reached the highest levels of their sport was that a difficult well, thing? Yeah, you, you? you
0: obviously, you obviously don't know much about. It. I was when my dad won the Masters, I was four years old. Um, so, you know, you don't, it's all, you know, so it's what, it is what so you, you can,
2: you
1: came into the world with him just being this, this notable figure already.
0: Yeah. We lived in a fairly small town. I don't know. It's 30 or 40,000 people a town of Belleville, Illinois, which is just across the Mississippi from St. Louis. And the one thing I never, you know, you think about it as you get older and just how you kind of evolved as a person, but you know, I was basically starting grade school in this small town where my dad was like this guy that just won the Masters. And, you know, he was the most well-known guy in the town. And so I kind of was, as a kid, you had, everybody was kind of looking at you, if that makes any sense. You were just kind of noticed, especially in a small town. And I think early on, I just wanted to kind of be ignored. Like, Hey, don't just, how come I can't just be like the other kid that no one's paying attention to what he's doing. So, I think that even impacts a little bit. You talk about the minimalism. I try to just stay out of the limelight a little bit. So I don't need to be the, I don't want to be the center of attention, but you know, he was definitely a big deal around there. And you know, he still lives there. He still kind of is. And you know, as you get older, you realize, you know, when I was a, High school kid, I thought my dad was an asshole. <laughs> like, you know, everybody's parent, I was like, ah, oh, they don't, <laughs> that, they don't know not, anything. That
1: doesn't make you unique.
0: <laughs> no, absolutely not. But you know, I just, you know, I thought I had the world figured out, just like every kid. And you know, I've, as my, you know, you get older, you realize, you know, he was a pretty, a pretty great guy, and he did a lot of outside of being really good at golf, and you know, he's, he did a lot of things for people that are unnoticed, like in the senior he pretty much helped get the senior tour started. He was doing TV when they started the legends of golf and he and about four guys just kind of barnstormed around the country, trying to sell this idea of senior golf. And, you know, they had to go in front of Dean Beeman a bunch of times to try to like, Hey, we could get this as a tour. People are interested in this. And they were going to New York, the TV networks and talking to people and sponsors and they got a few tournaments and Dean Beeman, my dad always would tell a story that like he was at the, the tour at a meeting with the players council or whatever that's kind of it's called, but, uh, Jim Colbert was in there and they were just laughing at him. It's like, nobody wants to watch you guys play. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and they didn't have any, they had no interest in this senior golf thing. And they got a few tournaments and a, my dad's like, you know, we could have owned it ourselves, but we didn't think that without the PGA tour behind it, we would be credible. And sometimes I was like, man, I wish you would have wow. gone ahead and owned it yourself. Yeah. Cause I could be sitting here being a little spoiled rich kid. <laughs> <laughs> but uh,
1: <laughs> you could build your own golf course then.
0: Exactly, I could do. I could do one of those Finance creative things you're talking about. Um, <laughs> but so he, you know, he did a. I mean, I remember him flying to cocktail parties just nonstop, trying to get sell tournaments and doing all that. And they got that thing going. And he uh, he also did something for like some of the older guys. There's like the tour now tour has a pension plan. Now you earn points for making cuts and finishing the top 10 and stuff. And these points are worth, you know, I don't know the dollar value, but you get money in a pension fund because they're independent contractors. So you can't, you're not working for general motors or something and having a pension, but there was no pension for a bunch of these older guys that came on before this. And I don't know, Jerry Barber, or, uh, Tommy Bolt or whoever, all these guys, they, you know, they were done playing and they didn't Basically, some of the different guys, Ted Kroll, for example, they had no money. So my dad kind of put together something with the tour where they could go play some pro-ams and during the year and they would get a little bit of money. So it actually kept these guys solvent, basically, in the last years of their life. And that was I thought that was pretty cool. He was thinking about these other guys that had nothing and kind of went out of his way to, you know, basically make their lives, the last years of their lives happy yeah no know, that's that's, the right that's amazing but, you know but just you know he's he's done a lot of things where he thinks about other people and people don't really see him that way because he was you know he's a hothead when he played golf when he was younger and uh but you know there's a lot of things to learn everybody can learn from their parents obviously and you know i've come to appreciate a lot of the stuff he's done do you have kids no i don't and that's you know makes it easier for me to do this if i was <laughs> it on the makes it easier like if you'd be an asshole if you want to yeah no. <laughs> nobody's watching you but
1: then, then again there's there's no redemption for you down the line you know that's the you know the kids think their parents are assholes and then they usually come around later on and appreciate them but you're just gonna yeah. be even keel the whole way
0: i don't know that's you know that's one of the even the things i have no kids but i really enjoy working it's been fortunate for tom having his intern program i've gotten to work with a lot of you know 20 something kids that come out here and it's it's a blast hanging out with those guys. So, well, most I, of them, you
1: know, just from a from a family perspective, it, it makes you, it might make you a, a better artist. You know, you have the freedom to to go to whatever the, wherever the job needs you in a, with a clear conscience. And I mean, there's a certain liberating aspect to you know living the life without children that you're leading.
0: No, there isn't. it's, you know, my wife has been you know pretty understanding and because I'm pretty selfish about doing this and traveling and all that and so she's been she's been great allowing me to kind of just kind of go with it and, and she's able to come too and so she really enjoys traveling as well so it's yeah. it, it's been great but you know obviously there sure there might be some regrets down the line about not having kids but that's kind of water under the bridge so
1: Exactly when was the first time that how old were you when you first went to Augusta
0: I don't exactly remember but I was probably 7 or 8 10 you know did, something did you like that go 10. back with your dad most years no now and then you know i never went every year um
1: it probably didn't seem like that big of a deal to you if if you could just go no, once a year or no, whenever you wanted
0: it didn't it, it was just like going to the phoenix open or Doral or something i didn't That's think nuts. that big of a deal of it so you know? bananas and now we you know the the benefits that come out of him winning the tournament you know that's i don't obviously he would have never realized that when he won like it was 68 so that's 50 last year was his 50th anniversary so it's the 51st year you know i don't think you'd realize that you're going to get 51 years of what you got from that you know and i've gotten a lot out of it too um i that first time i actually was there that i can really remember i was with my dad I guess it was Easter break or something. And I was at greens. The greens were open with him, which used to be the week before the masters. And so I was caddying and I was probably 14 or something and he missed the cut. So we went down to Augusta on Friday night and on Saturday we were out there and he's playing a practice round with one of the Augusta caddies, which they had back then. And so he hit off the first tee and we went out and then I played out of his bag the rest of the way and didn't, didn't cut on nine. And you know, he's like, yeah, you don't let him see you. Yeah. Clifford Roberts sees you. He'll bite, yeah, he'll you know, he's going <laughs> to... Yeah, no, Clifford Roberts would kill you if he sees you doing this. So I kind of played out of his bag, stereotypically, sort of, I and mean, um, I remember I was playing pretty good. He had he used to swing a club that was, like, E4 on swing weight, and I'm, like, just, like, trying to swing a, I don't know, a sledgehammer. Mm-hmm. And uh, But I remember playing pretty good. I remember being, like over going into 15 thinking i'm like sitting to have this little shot into the green and i'm like man i'm gonna birdie this i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot in the 70s <laughs> and uh so i'm asking my dad i remember sitting on the slope in front of 15 and i'm like so what is this like a wedge and this is like they didn't he didn't use yardages you know what i mean they just hit shots right yeah um, that's amazing yeah and so he's like uh oh, it's probably yeah Try a nine iron and so so I pull his nine iron, and I just nut it, and I'm watching it, and it's like it lands like in the first third of the lake, and he just starts laughing at me, you know, <laughs> and so it was probably a seven iron, but it looked short to me, and so I just remember that. It's like, God, you ass ruined my round, <laughs> but, uh, you know, having the opportunity to do something like that as a 15-year-old or 14-year-old is, you know, th- people don't get that opportunity, and I and not it 15. Yeah. And I didn't even think about it, you know, and there's out there playing inside the ropes at Augusta. Um, you know, I, I had some other crazy experiences there just like that. I mean, I was on the, my cousin is Jay Haas is my dad's sister is Jay Haas is Jay Haas's mother. So
1: didn't know that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So Jerry Haas is Jay's brother and Jerry was at with me at Wake Forest and then Bill Haas is Jay's son. And I'll get sidetracked here real quick, but because I just saw this. I was visiting my dad when I came out to California. He's in Palm Springs in the winter, and I stopped by his house, and my cousin Jerry, who's the coach at Wake Forest, had just sent him this little text with a little picture of a note that Jerry took. And it was about PGA tour starts for basically family members. And he listed this thing out, and I think Jay Haas had 799 tour starts and then my dad had like 480, and Bill Haas had 380, and then um, Jay's wife, her name was Jan Pruitt, and Jan's brother, Dillard Pruitt, played on the tour as well, he was in college at Clemson when I was at Wake, and Dillard played the tour, and he played 240 events, and then Jerry Haas played 153. And Jay's son played one, I think it was, and Jay's son, Jay Jr. Anyway, there was like 2,000, I think the number was 2,040 tour starts for like the family members. Jeez. And that, that's not including senior like champions tour or the web.com or Nike. And if you added those, they're probably more in the 3,000. So like guys in my direct family have like 3,000 starts in the PG. Yeah,
1: did you try to figure out if, if any other, you know, connected family could rival that?
0: I don't, I did not try, but I was like, who else would even come close? Because number one, where Jay is at 799, Jay has like the, I think he made 500 and he made more cuts than my dad started. I mean, my dad had 480 starts or something and Jay's made like 525 cuts, Uh which if you do the math, that's if you do 20 years, that's 25 cuts a year, you know, plus who's ever going to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean, people don't even play enough to make 20. You know? No. They play like, no, if you're, if you're, tournaments.
0: If you're, if you're good enough to make the cut, you're not going to play that many tournaments anymore. Yeah. You know? Uh, um, so, anyway, I don't know how we got started oh, on you, that. You said you so had some
1: like, other, some other, so many good memories.
0: Oh, yeah. So, you know, I've basically been exposed to a lot of golf. And uh, so, like, I'm down there, and Jay Haas is at the Masters one of his first times in the 70s. And. I remember standing on the, like, the old range at Augusta was right out the back of the pro shop, and uh, it's still there. They use it for the everyday play, but you literally just were, there was a grandstand sitting right behind the clubhouse in this little part in this little range along Magnolia Lane, and uh, there's guys with shag bags. The caddies are out there with shag bags. You brought your own shag bag to Augusta, and this is in the mid-70s, late 70s, Mm and so there's guys out there. And so my dad's hitting balls with Jay and then Sam Snead, who's a good friend of my dad's. They were always really close friends. Sam comes out and kind of stands there and they're kind of watching, talking to Jay and they're just standing there and I'm sitting, just sitting on the bag. And so then my dad's like, why don't you hit a few? Let Sam see you hit a couple. Now I'm like, no fricking way. Yeah, like, I there's be like, there, uh, there's my, my, my arm's yeah. shoulder's hurting, man. I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah, oh, my arm, it's broke. yeah, my arm, look <laughs> But uh, anyway, so I'm like, yeah, I'm like, oh, I don't want it. There's a few people in the stands back there. There's probably 50 people or something back there at this point. You know, when Sam came, some more people kind of showed up. And so they get me to start taking a swing and I hit a shot. And as I hit in the shot, I just hear like it sounds like, I don't know, the Indy 500 coming around the corner or something. It's just what the hell is going on? And turn around, and Jack is coming out on the range. So this is like pre primo 70s Jack, you know? Right. Um, The
1: flowing locks, the floppy collar. Yeah,
0: exactly. The Angelo, the caddy with his, you know, gray hippie hippie, hair. The cigarette smoke. Exactly. Come rolling out of the range. And literally, I think everyone in the whole Augusta National, the patrons, come rolling out with him. So that stand is literally filled up in like... (laughs) <laughs> 4 seconds. It was just like boom exploded full of people. Now I'm standing here with a club in my hand. And so every you know everybody comes up and they see this like 14 year old kid on the range with a club. So I become the center of attention and I've hit a couple of shots and so Sam's like telling me to you know and Jack actually walks by and starts talking to him and then disappears. And so you know he's four stalls away or just four you know he's 40 feet away or 30 feet away or something. And so Sam's telling me to like Clear my hips out. a little, yeah, son. Yeah, boy. Clear your hips out a little more. You're like, you're laying back. You got to get those releasing them. So I try to do that. Now, the caddies out there, I've hit about three shots and the caddies get the test because all these other guys literally when they're playing, when they would hit in the range back then, those guys would drop it. Within like a six foot circle, yeah. a lot caddie. of caddies usually just,
1: just one hop it with one hand, just like exactly. right never,
0: they never moved. I mean, that's and that was, you know, I don't know if that made those guys probably even better because they literally hit it. It was amazing. Though. I, I did the same thing, it's like it landed at my feet every time. Anyway, so the caddies out, he's getting pissed because I'm hitting one 15 yards left and then one twenty yards right and then one ten yards short, <laughs> and he's getting just pissed because the other the caddies each take their little spot they had, and so I can see he's pissed and I'm embarrassed. So, anyway. As this crowd's there, I'm really—I'm just nervous as hell. Sam's telling me, "So, clear your hips, boy. Clear your hips." And I do it, and I shanked it—just dead shank, right into Magnolia Lane.
2: Oh God!
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm just like—I just want to crawl. I'm looking for a hole to crawl in, obviously. And they're like, "Just oh, hit another one." And I'm like, oh, God. And you know what happens when you got to shank. So I literally shanked three balls into Magnolia Lane while the whole grandstand is full and everybody's watching me. And it was like, I think I didn't want to play golf for like four years after that. No kidding.
1: <laughs> look, I mean, look, come on, Sam. no Slammer, nobody swings like you. Don't be given lessons. Yeah.
0: yeah, and that's what my dad would always say. Oh, You know, just kind of do like Sam. Do this little forward press like Sam. It's like, Dad, come on. It's like, you know, I'm not Sam. <laughs> Well, so, who, like,
1: were you ever since you grew up with your dad in that environment and, you know, you went to Augusta on occasion, were you ever sort of in awe of any of the pros that are the, the past champions that you saw? I mean, obviously, Sam, he made you n- nervous enough. Jack was impressive.
0: You know, I I don't really ever feel like I was in awe of those guys because you kind of saw behind the scenes. that that makes any sense. You know, you saw these guys for just as who they were as people, and sometimes you saw that they weren't who they portrayed themselves to be when the TV cameras were on. Sure. Um, so I, I never really was that in awe that I can think of, of anyone. Obviously, you know, when Jack Nicholas walks out on the range when you're a kid, that was something, a pretty big deal. But, like, we had, you know, I think when they had the first Disney tournament back in the early 70s, they played at Disney World. And so, like, every tour guy in their family came, and so... I was hanging around, running around Disney World with Jack and his kids, you know, for four days. And so it wasn't, I don't know, they it, it didn't seem that crazy to me that they were, oh my God, this is Arnold Palmer or whatever
2: it would mm-hmm. be, you know.
0: Um,
1: Nowadays, you you'd so. think that um, if you were around August in the 70s and like Ben Hogan was there, like, you know, his, his legend grows and grows and grows every year. So you would think that, you know, somebody would have a memory of you know you know the hawk but but then again you know you might not have you know really known his history at that point in time
0: yeah you know i I probably wasn't aware of who Ben hogan was just this old guy if you're a 12 year old kid there's just this old guy yeah um but you know my dad's told me tons of stories about him and hogan and you should have him on he can tell some of the best stories ever but you know i remember he told me one about the masters about tom weiskopf Coming up to their table at lunch, and they had just played a practice round with Hogan, my dad and Sam, and somebody, and they were sitting there. And then and Tom Weisskopf came up and was like, Hey, Mr. Hogan, did you, uh, you know, I sent you a letter? Bert Yancey and I wanted to see if you would play a practice round. And he's like, said, You know, Hogan was smoking, and he's like, just kind of drag his cigarette and just kind of didn't look up. And then finally, just kind of glanced up, Oh, I never got your letter. And then he's like, and he said, Like, Tom Weisskopf's just kind of standing there. And my dad's like, You know, there was some seats, but it was Hogan's table. We're not going to ask him to sit down because it's Hogan. <laughs> right. and, uh, so anyway, that he just said, Hogan, like, say, I never got your letter. And then he kind of just, well, you know, we'd love to play a practice round with you. And he just didn't, have, he didn't say anything. <laughs> and then he just said, Weiskopf just standing there for a while and finally just kind of walked away. And he's like, they said, Hogan, like, kind of dragged on a cigarette. And he's like, I got his fucking letter. I like I play golf. I play golf with who I want to play with. <laughs> so
1: <laughs> that, yeah, it's not so, that's not a surprising anecdote.
0: No, but it, it's just, and that's the cool thing about, you know, what I grew up with. I mean, I've to just be exposed to all this stuff that you don't realize how great it is till you get older, you know,
1: it seems so interesting that, that you come from this background. You just mentioned like your family's relationship with the Haases and, you know, your dad and this environment. And, it, that, to me, seems like such a different world than, you're still in golf, but it seems like such a different world than the one you exist in now. I mean, the glamour level, at the very least, is, is you know, one's the burning sun and the other's the dark side of the moon as far as exposure and <laughs> glamour.
0: Yeah, and, you know, nobody in my family is that interested in what I'm doing. You know, that's like, uh, nobody's really, you know, the sure. players are the people they're interested in and even the guys that, like, you know, Jay, my cousin Jay's great and my cousin Jerry's great, but you know, they're they aren't that curious about where I'm working or anything. You know, they're more worried about how to how to hook the ball a little extra or less with the new irons they got, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, you want to you want to stop a dinner conversation cold in its tracks, start talking about golf course architecture with your family or or
0: guests. Yeah, exactly. That's so I nowhere. honestly I I I don't. <laughs> yeah, I right, know
1: it's the smart move. Well, did you did you see the um the Golf Digest story recently that Ron Witten did, when he asked survey architects and asked them what changes they would make to Augusta National if they could. Did you happen to see that? No,
0: I I only saw a little bit. I saw I kind of glanced at a couple of quotes. I haven't actually read the article.
1: I um I struggle a little bit with this this concept of or the idea that Augusta is is poorly designed now. I mean, I understand all the arguments for it, but it seems. It seems to me like it's it's sort of like a um a parlor game now to talk about what you would do differently and now that I've kind of set it up like that I was that that I'm on one side of the fence I'll ask you like if if what do you think of that golf course and do you think that it it serves its purpose as being a championship venue well or does or would you rather see it become uh something other than it is now? you know it probably as well as any architectural person
0: i don't know if i know it as well i would think ben Crenshaw probably knows it a lot better okay. than me <laughs> <laughs> Take um, back. yeah um but you know i actually caddied there too once to the caddying once you didn't have to have a club caddy i was able to caddy there a few years for my dad too which was really cool um yeah so you know and i've it probably had early on as far as architecture even if i wasn't thinking architecture it probably had more impact on me than just about anything by that in Harbor town. I actually played Town like a junior heritage. I just remember like thinking, wow, there's actually, this is different. I actually have to think about some things that I'd never thought about, you know. But anyway, Augusta, though, had a huge impact on me. And the biggest thing to me that's changed was their introduction of the second cut. I mean, you would always go down there and you'd walk out the back of the clubhouse and just this sprawling green field of turf, you know, interrupted by a few pine trees and some pine needles. And that, I mean, there was just something about that when I was a kid. And when I first started doing design, that's all I wanted to do was just have no rough. And it was was before anybody was, at least I knew when I started this in 1990, I didn't know anybody was like into like, you know, no rough. I just thought that was really cool. It's like, why not? It's simple, I and mean, you can just mow it with one mower. And um, you know, I was thinking kind of economically, I guess, early on. But um I just remember showing up at Augusta the first year they did that second cut, and it was just—I don't know—it just—it just hurt. It just like yeah. ooh, that's that's awful. They took away like, I the thing that like,
1: made you notice.
0: Yeah. And then you actually noticed it more. Like the first fairway was just grotesque. And they've gotten better. The first year they did it, it was just awful. Like they literally took a tape measure out. It was like 28 or 32 yards and just, you know, they didn't even look at the contours of the ground. Um, and actually, Brian Schneider was working at Augusta when they did it. In the Supers, like, you know, this Marzoff guy's coming out think it was Mars office coming out to kind of do the fairways you're in architecture why don't you go with him and Brian went out doing the first hole and he's like god he's just really this is what we're doing <laughs> and uh so that to me I'm that was my that was yeah I think he didn't last much longer but uh anyway it was no that's uh, the, the biggest change yeah, the, the fir- I
1: remember the first year that I went to Augusta is like in 2002 I think and I remember walking like along the the pine, not in the pines, but just right at the far edge of the whole corridor and looking down and seeing sprinkler heads with yardages on them and thinking like we're that used to be cut to the fairway. So that would that would be important, you know, if, if the member was over here or whatever, you know, to have a yardage market. But now we're 15, 20 yards into the rough. Why would you? Typically on a golf course, if a sprinkler heads that far off play, you, it's not marked with a yardage. So it's yeah, just it and I never, early. I never really
0: noticed that. But yeah, you're probably right. They were all just marked at one point. And it's uh, and just, just what they've done with the trees and like the 11th hole is just <laughs> atrocious. I think. And uh, with the tree planting and uh, you know, you know, you know that hole. Like the first time they planted the trees the first year, I remember going out there and it was like. What are they thinking? There's this big row of trees down the right side of the fairway, but then there was a 25-yard opening just behind them. And was, it's like, this is stupid. You miss it just off the fairway. You're in this row of trees, but you block it way over here, and you've got a fine angle, and there was guys hit it over there. Yeah. It, had, you know, it just it made no sense, and it still doesn't to me. Well, then, um, they, then
1: they backfilled in that area
0: yeah they i mean they do so much every year it's like it's kind of funny because the guys are kind of sitting in the locker room kind of trying to guess what they did you know each year like because they you know they don't really promote what they did and what they've changed if they tweak the green or you know do whatever soften a bump in the fifth green and i don't know you mentioned the, the members a second ago playing and i just to me that was the coolest thing about Augusta, just the concept. It was a members' course. So they played a tournament. You know, it was it was something that the members could really play, but it was still challenging for a tournament play. And obviously, with guys who get three hundred and seventy yards off the tee, it's kind of hard to combine those two today. But I just think they've lost their way. It's like it's all about the Masters, and it's not about member play at all.
1: Yeah, and I think that I think that to me is is the point. And it's amazing to me, though, that—and maybe this is the wrong way to look at it, and I'll, I'm willing to concede that, perhaps—but it's amazing that through all the architectural and setup and agronomic changes they've made through, you know, the last 20 years, that the tournament is still compelling to watch. I mean, the, you the— the drama and the interest and the excitement that it produces and just the, the fan interest and the television ratings and how people get excited for it hasn't changed pretty much, you know, in the last 20 years, it's still, the the outcomes can still be as riveting as an exciting as they were in 1975. So it, it, the courses, either the changes have been smart because they've continued to produce good results or the course is so good that you can't, bungle it you know in a way
2: yeah i've
1: I've actually been down it's really about the masters and not about the club course it's all for the
0: tournament yeah and there's just t's you're like you know where they put some t's it's just crazy where the t's kind of keep going back to but it didn't seem like for a while there the whole and there was there were stories about that the roar is gone You you didn't hear a lot of the roars in the back nine on the sunday just But they seem to have gotten that back a little bit, and I don't know exactly why. Um, But, you know, the one thing that that place is always going to have, they have great greens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's great contours in the greens, which add drama, because there's still the do-or-die aspect. If you get on the wrong side, it's a tough chip. you know the things feed back off of slopes, which is really cool to watch when the ball trickles off a slope back. You know, and it's not even a McKenzie hole, but it's always fun to watch that ball trickle on number sixteen, kind of down towards the hole, or you know on thirteen if it's rolling off the kind of down into the pin. So I, you know, they still there's still a great design there. It's just I don't know. I just don't know if the what the course was founded on by like by Jones. Was in there with Mackenzie, and I actually had this conversation one day. It was in the, it was probably about eight years ago. I was down there, and I was with my cousin Jerry Haas, and we went. A guy took us to a cabin, one of the, one of the cabins on the left of number ten, and I'd never been to one of those. So we walked in, and Johnny Harris, who owns um, Quail Hollow, is a member. Of Augusta, sitting there, we all sitting on a cooler that's kind of cool because these guys just have igloo coolers in there with beer. So kind of hanging out with the Augusta members on the igloo cooler in the one of the cabins. So Johnny Harris is talking to my cousin Jerry, and he's like, "You yeah, know, Jerry, when when did you play here last?" And Jerry had played; he was on the Walker Cup, and Jerry had played in '86 at Augusta. And Jerry's like, "Yeah, it was '86," and Johnny's like, "Oh, we we done changed everything since then. This is a whole different course." And I'm like. So Johnny, do you think that's a good idea? Don't you think Mackenzie and Jones were pretty smart? Maybe you should have respected that. and He just thought I looked at me like I was the biggest jerk that was ever put on Augusta. Yeah, but uh you know. And, but that was the mentality. They were it sounded like they were proud that they had pretty much changed the whole golf course. You know.
1: Well, it definitely got it definitely got tailored to professional golf I mean it got fine-tuned to the point where it you know it was the pr- appropriate challenge for professional players and that the club staked their reputation on you know being the host of the Masters and that was their identity so it was gonna have to make some they were gonna have to make modifications if that's who they wanted to be because I don't think the I don't think no, the original I think McKinsey right. course I mean Bobby jo- Bob Jones realized that you know with the first couple of years that the course they built might have been a amazing member course, you know. It, it could have been so incredible to you know to behold now if they'd never changed it, but it wasn't going to work for what they what they wanted it to work for.
0: No, I agree. I mean, some of the changes that they made, you know, obviously they were they Bobby Jones would have had to been thinking about it. You know, they didn't just move number ten green for no reason and um, different things like that. Change number sixteen, but. uh I just, I don't know. I think that it's maybe it's just stylistic. You know, that's like, you just, you go, you see those bunkers that are just big tic-tac kind of shapes that are really super deep and stand all perfection all the way to the top. And, you know, maybe a lot you talked about just everything's the same. Maybe we all just want to see that style of the old Mackenzie style back on it or something. But uh, I, just, I just would like to see him personally go back to the, and no rough and if the greens have to have a little more slope in them and my dad used to tell me when the greens were bermuda that it was really hard because the the greens were rock hard nothing held and if you were putting up or down grain if you were going up the slope you were going into the grain but as soon as you got over the crest it was going down grain and it was like you know the putting was and chipping was a much more difficult element because you were dealing with that grain and slow and fast speeds and yeah, you know, literally the ball wouldn't stop. So you had to kind of, you had to play the contours of the greens. And you were hitting, obviously, a four iron instead of a nine iron.
1: Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine that. It's always amazing to watch the old, you know, Masters clips. And it's always amazing to me how much spin they were able to get on the ball. It, it, and get those, it, considering you, what you just said, how hard the greens were and the way the grain flowed. It's amazing that they were hitting it so precisely that they could get the ball to check up. It didn't back up, but it would check up, you know, pin high on those greens. I think that was a real shot-making skill that was even uh, of increased value back then. You know, now it's we take it for granted, but on those conditions, uh, that was really something, that was a really uh, accurate ball strike. Right.
0: Yeah, even the conditions, the fairways, they weren't the same. You know, I mean, you, you kind of could catch flyers in the fairway. Yeah. Um, but that's something like I just remember looking at my dad's clubs, even in the, like the barn and the garage and like seeing his irons that the spot that was worn out in the sweet spot was like the size of an eraser on your pencil. You know, like literally hitting the shot every single time right in the spot. Jeez. And, you know, watching those shots, like you said, the, the shots that those guys hit and they were playing on, you know, I think I heard one of your podcasts with Jay. You talk about, oh, they should play on like a Muni. I mean, well, those guys did play on
1: Muni. They did, yeah. They
0: played on just, they played on crap. I mean, they told me they played in, uh, Houston, in the San Antonio Open, I think it was Brackenridge Park, and they used a AstroTurf mat to tee off on. And Mike Suchak shot 59, or whatever it was, or not 59, but 259, whatever it was, off of basically it was snowing, it was common Bermuda that was dormant, and they were playing off of mats on the tee. And, you know, he set the scoring record or whatever he did. And it's like, you know, just the, the putting they did every week. It was a completely different set of greens and, you know, the different speed and the bunkers had this sand in them they didn't have sand in them or, you know, and they adjusted and could play. And, you know, it's a completely different way that guys play today. And I just think there were some guys that were really, really, really talented. There's way more talented guys today, I think, of larger quantity. But I think – The shot making skills of the minority of the group, I think those guys were just, you know, they could pull stuff out of the just rabbit out of the hat, you know.
1: And just even what you said, they didn't have yardage books. That I'm not sure when yardage books really started to become common. You said your dad didn't use one at least, you know, at, at that period of time. So to be able to eyeball those shots and read these kind of scuzzy lies that they had and figure out how yeah. the ball was going to jump on the green i mean that's artistry that's a real innate skill that uh isn't required anymore
0: yeah and it's uh i think he said the uh, yardage that jack was the first guy with uh the angelo the caddy was the first guy that really was taking yardages and i was like well how did you know like what it was ah you know you played every year at the course and you knew that <laughs> You know, the front of that bunker was like basically a seven iron to the green. And if the pin was in the back, it was another club. And if it was, you know, then you just kind of did that. And if the wind was in your face and all that, and that's just kind of how they how they rolled. And I don't know if you played just I don't really have check yardages that much, but
1: I, I like to have a, a general reference. I played a golf course the yeah. other day that had no. Markings on it anywhere, and it's, it was because they assumed everybody was going to take carts, and they were tricked out with all these fancy GPSs. But I was walking, and and I had no, I literally no, I I, I didn't know if I was a hundred and fifty yards or a hundred and seventy-five yards because I'd never played there before, and it was a it was a completely new experience. I, I, I liked, I would have liked to have had a general idea <laughs> within a club or so, but uh, I, you know, because I'm not used to eyeballing it. Yeah, uh, but it was no a it really interesting it's way just... to play.
0: It's a skill, though. It's funny because I I kind of do what you're doing. I'll either use a 150 plate or something. You know what I mean? But yeah, like, that's there's all you need. been times when I've just kind of started playing with that it in some places. And it's almost I don't know. It's almost like a skill. Like you're you can't remember a phone number for your life now because you got your cell phone. But you used to know everybody's phone number. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like this skill that you have, but you just lose or it comes back. And I just think those guys, you know, they didn't know any different, and you could just eyeball it and you knew what club it was. Now, obviously knowing exactly is probably a smarter way to do it as far as if you're playing for millions of dollars. And I remember my dad telling me a story. I think it was Homero uh, blanks And they were playing in... It might have been the U.S. Open. I can't remember. But the team, they were on a par three. And the guy pulled out a four iron and knocked it over the green by like, I don't know, 35 yards. And he's like looking at his caddy like, what the hell? And he's like, well, the team was back there yesterday and they just came to the par three hit the same club didn't even pay any attention that the tee had been moved up like 30 yards (laughs) and
1: uh (laughs) that's the thing yeah i mean if you just played everything instead of by yard you know instead of saying look well the front of that bunker is 140 yards you said the front of that bunker is a nine iron and you just kind of gauged everything by what iron you hit that's even another way to think your way around a golf course just by and that's what
0: they did did. they didn't think of numbers they thought at least my dad he just thought of what club it was you know
1: let me, uh, let's start, let's start closing this out. Um, I was going to go back to something you said earlier about it wouldn't, it wouldn't it would surprise your, your friends to hear this that, that you're not opposed to getting on the bulldozer and, and moving heaven and earth and, and stuff if, if, if that is what it takes, um, I want to explain that a little bit more. Like, what do, what do you see as your greatest asset? You're sort of like the utility guy, the go to utility guy for not just for Tom Doke, but but for a lot of other architects. Why do you get the phone calls, and and what is what is the special skill that you bring to the job
0: site? I don't know if it's uh, I mean, some wind in my face. Um, I don't know. If it's late. If somebody might laugh at me saying this, but maybe lack of ego a little bit. I'm not, I don't, I'm not trying to like, Hey, it's about me. I need my, I need to get credit for this. So, you know, if I go work for somebody and build a bunch of greens and you know, I, I don't really use a set of plans. Like I work with Jay Blossie out in Santa Ana and he, you know, Jay was, it was his first real course and he's working his tail off and he's, doing drawings for these greens and he brings me this drawing and I'm like, I don't want this thing. And, uh, it's just going to, it's just going to hinder me. I'm just, if I get stuck with this, you might as well just go get some robot color by numbers. Cause I can't, I can't help you if I'm just stuck here without being creative. I need to just know what you kind of concept you want and let's just make something cool. Um, but I think I can just kind of wing it for guys and you know, and you say utility? I'm I'm fine if I'm building a green or building a fairway contour or building a bunker or whatever, and can do all those things and usually pretty quick at it. So uh, and you know I've done my own design work too, so I kind of know the nuts and bolts of things and the design aspect. And I don't know exactly what my greatest skill would be. I just think I can do a little bit of everything, and uh, I think I have a pretty good eye on design. And, you know, I think it, one, one of the things you kind of end up with a designer on the machine, you've got, you know, somebody that can kind of just take over and go with something and
2: mm-hmm.
0: be a little flexible. I think I was mentioning all the different things. I had different styles I had done. So I, if someone has an idea, I can usually get it in the ground for them and kind of, it's kind of coming out where they were thinking. So, um, yeah. I mean,
1: your uh, your resume is so impressive and with all the people that you've worked with, I mean, I, th- you, I think you're like the highest or like really high on everybody's call list when they need work done.
0: Maybe some guys. Some guys might not want me around because some of that dropping the blade stuff, I'm you know, i out here right now and I kind of haven't really followed directions exactly, but I think what what I did makes more sense than what we were trying to do. Now, we'll find out, but uh, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure. I think... Getting along with people, though, and being some of the younger guys you've talked to, I think, you know, they might need to check their egos a little bit. And I've heard you talk about guys doing collaborations. And, you know, if you're any good at this today in this business, you better be able to collaborate because, you know, you're out working on a crew. Just say you're on a dope job. Yeah, there's three or four or five guys. You better be able to get along with people and not make it about you, but make it about the golf course. And you also, you know, you're on the road. It's like if you're on the road like this a lot, you've got to be able to. I mean, I don't want to be on the road with someone I don't like. I want to kind of hang out and go to dinner with somebody. I mean, we spend more time with these guys like, you know, Bruce and I were, Bruce Heppner and I were joking. I think we spent more time with each other than our families for a lot of years, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that's, you have to be able to get along too. And I think some of these younger guys may have to, you know, I think that's been good for them. Maybe early on they've gotten better as the years go on. I think Jim Wagner's probably beaten beaten a couple guys down enough that they've had to learn to maybe get along better. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. Okay.
0: I think I nailed it with
1: that. Um, so, yeah.
0: And it's a good point. I mean, I was, I was a hothead a little bit, thinking all my ideas were the best. And so you have to – I think I don't, know, I don't really know why I get phone calls, but hopefully it's because I'm doing good work, I guess, you know. And it doesn't. It's not something that has to get changed or have to go blow it up next year.
1: So you mentioned being on the road. You mentioned Bruce Heppner working with Tom. I don't. I don't want you to say the answer to this question to be I like them all because I, I really think I, the backstories of these golf courses are interesting and we can learn a lot from them. But so of the work you've done with Tom Doke and and his guys, what, what's been the best? kind of experience as far as like being on site? Maybe it was because of the location, maybe because of the difficulties, but what what's your most indelible memory of working on one of Tom's projects?
0: The most indelible memory? Yeah,
1: or favorite memory, you know, just whatever like yeah. you'll take with you to your grave when you die. Like, what's the last yeah, I, project you know, you'll think of?
0: Yeah, I think indelible is probably Valley Mill, just because we were just in the, you know, we were basically just this little band with each other we had nobody else we had a again like guys you get along with we had jonathan reester and mike mccarton were on their first post-college job just as interns and you know they were just grunts with rakes and just good guys and so we just had a, a crew of a really bruce myself brian schneider and you know a few guys on the maintenance staff and just we just had a blast just out in the middle of nowhere and we knew that we were working on something that was pretty crazy And, uh, you know, Schneider and I were out there building fairway contours and we had these four wheelers that we ran around the job on. And sometimes we were just building fairway contours that were good things to jump on the four wheelers. It's like if we (laughs) build this cool jump, it'll actually maybe make a cool fairway contour also, you know. And so it was just just fun. We just had a bunch of fun. And Bruce and Rupert, the owner, and everybody just it was fun. And I just remember we just had a blast. It's just such a weird place to be out in the middle of nowhere, you know um so that was indelible but probably the coolest and the golf course we built for tom wasn't probably my favorite we ever worked on it was a renaissance club over in scotland but like i mentioned before living in a house overlooking north barrett and at first i worked there twice actually i went back and kind of ran a job for tom we added three holes to that golf course kind of down by the ocean but uh the first year we were there martin hoish the pro at uh North Barrick, they let us play every night, so we would, you know, it stays light till eleven o'clock. So we would work till six or seven, and just we go play North Barrick every night, and that was, I mean, that was the coolest experience of my life as far as being on golf, just being able to hang out in North Berwick and play that golf course and get to know that place. I, I love that golf course.
1: Okay, that's enough of that. I'm jealous. I don't want to hear anymore.
2: <laughs> Playing North Barrick <laughs> yeah, every I, night.
0: I, I know, and I just like, you know, you're going, oh, we'll be back here every year, and I've been back. You know, one time. And it's like you, you think you're always going to get back, and it's just, you don't.
1: Well, at least you. <laughs> thanks for the memories, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, when you go back to Japan, what's the first thing that you want to eat?
0: Ah, uh, first thing, probably ramen. Mm-hmm. A good bowl of ramen. What else is it? Is there,
1: a, is there a specific spot that you, that you have or a, or a
0: not place? really. Nah, just Tokyo is amazing for food. I mean, I was kind of blown away by just the amount of just great quality food. There's just so much good stuff. I mean, you can go get amazing sushi. You can get amazing food in Seven Eleven. There's actually good food in seven which It's just, just, you know, huh? So, um, yeah, it's just, I love, I just, I can, I don't know how those guys say so thin. It's uh, there's, just so much great food there
1: have you did you ever try chicken sashimi
0: chicken sashimi like raw chicken yeah i had some raw chicken but it wasn't sashimi but i just there's a guy that i work with over there he's actually an irrigation guy that he became a friend i did that first job at abiko and he's kind of he's a nutcase we went with him to play golf at uh the design head course but he takes me to these places to just have like i don't even know what the stuff is like you get yakitori which is a stuff on a stick that a grill and these guys they eat stuff on a stick that just are you kidding me it's like you know second trachea and you know second third stomach and brain <laughs> yeah and there was actually Anus, like if they had this translated menu, there's anus on a stick. It's like, yeah, I don't think so.
1: Yeah, they come up with a, <laughs> a, a, like a, a local <laughs> regional name for that.
0: <laughs> they, they do they said whatever it was in Japanese sounded fine but yeah, then when they translated it do like ask, yeah
1: I think the lesson is don't ask it to be translated into,
0: into yeah you part. don't want to translate translated menus a really bad idea yeah well I had, so, a, I had a buddy
1: uh, who went over there and um, he did a lot of traveling and he, he spent some time in Tokyo and, and same thing he had a uh, I guess a client or somebody who was taking him around to eat and they went to this place and they served him raw chicken, like sliced thinly, and and my friend was like, "Are you sure? I don't, I don't think we're going to want to eat this." And the guy's like, "Yeah, no, no, no problem, no problem." So he, my friend Steve, eats it, and it wiped him out. I mean, it was like eating raw chicken. Like he got some kind of like sickness, yeah, no, I, and he was laid out. I for literally like had days. raw
0: chicken last time I was there. I was like, "You guys, this is this is raw. We don't yeah. do this." <laughs> we're yeah. not, our and they're actually are not designed for this. Yeah, they, and right after that, the next dish that came out was raw horse meat.
2: Ugh. Oh,
0: I mean, so. Horse meat tartare. <laughs> okay. But, you know, hey, it's culture. Like, why is, you know, why is it okay to eat raw fish and not raw horse? I don't know. Uh, well,
1: so. parasites for one. It, yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So ramen. I'll, I'll, let's go with ramen. That seems, yep. that seems good, uh, good enough. I'm um, So last one. It's the question I ask everybody. What's the best modern golf course, the golf course that you like the, the most that you were not involved with?
0: that I was not involved with. Yeah. Okay. I I guess it would probably be some dope stuff that I didn't work on. Just I haven't really seen too much modern stuff. This is not
1: a suck-up now, is it?
0: No, no, not at all. (laughs) But uh, I would have to say Barnabroogle Dunes was probably the coolest one. But uh, I think St. Andrew's Beach that Tom did in down in Australia, that kind of blew me away that no one really talks about it much. That is really, really, really good. And, uh, you know, I really like that.
1: Yeah. I, I have obviously haven't been there, but I've, I've heard him talk about that and other people too. It looks, it it, it looks unique. It, I, you know, it has its own, it, it looks like it has its own place in, in his catalog of work. It, that doesn't look yeah. like much else.
0: No, it's, it definitely has, it's, it's its own place and it's, you know, it's, firm and dry and the greens are it's you know you talked about minimalism it's pretty minimal it's like the greens kind of feel like they were just sitting there and he kind of found a lot of them and i think i think that's tom's favorite thing honestly to do if he could find 18 greens that you just had to trap break and we didn't have to build anything i think he would be more thrilled and that would like make him happier than anything so yeah. i would say those two
1: okay if, if you didn't if you didn't have a relationship with Tom and you weren't, you know, as knowledgeable about his work as you are now, do you feel like you'd naturally as a as a golf course fan gravitate to his work more than someone else's or are you just so much more familiar with it that you can't disassociate your ideas or your, your yeah. emotions? I
0: don't I don't know. I'm really glad that I had the, uh, the opportunity worked out early on to kind of connect with him. Um, I do know when I was reading his Academy of a Golf Course and I did my first kind of design, which was in 93. And I was reading that book and it kind of robbed the golf course. So I just, the idea. So I just remember reading that. I was like, this guy thinks he knows everything. You know, there's no way he's just like, you know, he's kind of cocky and how can he know all this, you know? And uh, I don't know if I would maybe have a little bit of that impression of Tom if I didn't know him, which I think some people do. Uh, but he's really not that at all. You know, he's he really goes out of his way to kind of be helpful to people and to just be very thoughtful as far as how golf goes you know he has he's very confident in his ideas but you know he's also willing to listen to other people's ideas
1: well there's no arguing with his success and whatever whatever his methods are they've served him well
0: yeah so but i don't know what i would gravitate you know i actually when i first started this i actually tried to contact you know, Tom Fazio one time, and you know, I didn't know a whole lot, but I tried to. Sam Snead told me Reese Jones was doing really good work. You should talk to him. And, you know, I sent, sent letters to Pete and went and visited Pete Dye. And all those guys, nobody really offered me an opportunity, but Tom did. So who knows what, you know, if I'd have gone to work with Fazio in 1991, who knows where my brain would be.
1: That's always an interesting interesting game to play, you know, with the path that that you ended up on, you know, yeah, there's a lot of people that could have been on a, in architecture, there's a lot of different paths out there, there were, there are not as many anymore, but yeah, you could have got on a different train, got, got headed to a different station in a different place.
0: Yeah, maybe I would have gone to work for Art Hills, you know, and just, uh, just copying Pete Dye in a poor man's Pete Dye was a good thing to do. I don't know. Yeah, Stop.
1: maybe. Or, you know, Mike 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 DeVries was with uh, Fazio when he was early on, and it didn't seem yeah. to have any ill, Ill effect on him.
0: No, and I've told a lot of the kids they work with, you know, like they all want to work with dope or whatever on a job. And, you know, it's like, hey, there's not always going to be an opportunity to work with Tom or Bill, Bill if you need to make some money. But working with somebody else, you can learn things. And I've told a lot of guys that, learning how not, what you don't, learning why you shouldn't do another way is good too. If you build something that maybe you disagree with or whatever, but you can see the difference and you can, you can learn a lot by working on different things to see, you know, that's why it's better to do it this way or you can kind of make your own decision. Um, it's just, the more you do, the more, you know, so.
1: Yeah. When Dave Axland worked on an rtj2 project early on just to kind of get some experience and uh, learn how the how to run a construction site you know you wouldn't have thought that that was in his resume but he said he learned a lot from that
0: no it's i'm sure you do. doing like you know just working on these jobs i've worked on some with different guys that use contractors a lot more and it's i get i can get really frustrated by it but you watch how the contractors do things and while you watch you might pick up something that works a lot better but you also see a way that you can be more efficient you know, God, if they didn't do that, they could, uh, you know, you could save some money or if you could, anyway, you, you can definitely learn in all ways. And, you know, the contractors have been doing things for a long time. They have to know something. So you can definitely learn some things from them. Right on.
1: Kai, I'm going to let you go. I know you're busy. You're on the job. Okay. So I'm taking up enough of your time. Thanks for doing this. It was great talking to you.
0: Hi, right, Doug. Nice talking to you too.
1: Kai Golby, ladies and gentlemen, we recorded that conversation the Wednesday before the Masters, so some of our talk about Augusta National was relevant. I, I guess I didn't realize at the time that the night before his father had been at at Augusta at the Champions Dinner. But Kai's note about Augusta adding trees on eleven was kind of pertinent. It turns out Tiger was over there uh, twice out of the four days, over in that second row of trees, actually beyond that on sort of there's a footpath over there, and Tiger has managed to escape from that jail and get up and down. From the trees, or or make par from the from the trees right of eleven for two out of the four days, and on Sunday when it mattered most, um, it was also interesting regarding our conversation about minimalism. Uh, I just read a story this week uh, by Matt Chinella on Golf Advisor about the Sheep Ranch, the uh, the new course being developed at Bandon Dunes Resort. The old there was an old Sheep Ranch course built by Tom Doak there. It had something like like I forget what it is, like seven or eight greens, and you could just play to any green that you wanted, but now uh, Bill Corn, Ben Crenshaw are renovating that and turning it into a full 18 holes, turning, developing that property into the new 18 hole course there, abandoned dunes. But really what they're doing is just kind of leaving everything as they found it. Now, there were greens there, but they're incorporating as much as possible, building new greens, but just using ground features, natural occurring ground features as hazards. There'll be no bunkers there. So that kind of goes back to what Kai was talking about, um, those courses in New Zealand that he saw that he thought were kind of like true minimalist courses, um, and it's just interesting that it ties back to our conversation about what's minimalism and what would actual true minimalism look like. Uh, maybe we'll see something like that, a version of that at the Sheep Ranch. I'm not sure if Kai, Kai was aware of what Bill and Ben and the guys were doing out there, but, but anyway, that's pretty interesting. I know that Kai uh, had really wanted to give uh, some attention and some credit to a couple of the superintendents who are overseeing the work that he's doing on his solo projects right now, and, and we just, we didn't get to it It's my fault. I was kind of taking the discussion through a series of side doors, Uh, but I want to do that now. Uh, You know, good superintendents always make designers and architects look good, not only in the collaboration phase during construction in order to get a kind of a workable maintenance foundation in place, but also, of course, you know, after that, during growing and their understanding of the architectural intent is also critical in order for them to create the appropriate playing conditions and surfaces. Kai mentioned Saratoga Golf and Polo Club uh, in New York State in the podcast. It's a nine-hole course that he's been refreshing. It was built in 1897. And he told me afterwards that the superintendent, Stephen Aspinall, is just killing it there. Kai was working with uh, noted irrigation and turf specialist Don Mahaffey. You know Don from his work with Mike Nuzo at Wolf Point. Uh, we had Mike Nuzo on the podcast last year. Don was instrumental in getting Wolf Point built and created, and he's worked in many other places as well. But Stephen Aspinel is doing some great work taking Kai and Don's work and getting it ready for the opening. And at the Bill Langford West Bend Project, in Wisconsin that Kai mentioned. It's Greenkeeper Brian Bondlender, who's essentially for the last eight years kind of been a, a partner to Kai and synthesized his own passion, work ethic, and creative skills into Kai's design and, and the finished project in uh, doing it all expertly and, and also should be pointed out on, on quite a limited budget. So as Kai says, it's often thankless work, but he, he has no chance, he says, at being successful in these jobs without the talented and truly dedicated people like Aspinall and Bonlander. And uh, just a reminder to all you golfers and, and club members, go thank your superintendent today. It is thankless work. And um, most you know, so many people don't really realize the work that goes into keeping a golf course and and all the good things that the superintendents do to keep things running smoothly. So just go ahead and try to get to know what they do and give them thanks when you think about it. That'll do it here. So that's a wrap. Thanks to Kai Golby. That was a great talk. I really enjoyed talking to him. Cool guy. Just another reminder, as usual, please head over to iTunes, give the show a star rating and a review follow me on twitter and instagram i'm at feed the ball give me a shout out there when you see a new podcast episode posted. please like it comment on it if you listen to it retweet it tell your friends about the show thanks once again for tuning in and listening thanks to the sundogs for the music and until we get a chance to do this again ciao